back. We hope you are all well. We are, of course, still remote. Tim uh, out in Pasadena and mm. and uh, a, a place which, unfortunately, is mourning these days. Yeah. Tim, yeah. Pasadena has lost Eddie Van Halen. How, yeah. uh, is, is there a big wake still going on out there? Well, you know, the, 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 the COVID notwithstanding. Yeah, it's a deeply sort of felt thing right here. Pa- uh, Eddie Van Halen went to uh, uh, Pasadena City College, which is like you know a few blocks. I can walk to Pasadena City College. Uh, from where I am, uh, and everybody who lives in Pasadena knows, you know, the you know, the Van Halen home, <laughs> as as it were, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and you know, and, and one has to imagine that there just aren't any streets of Pasadena that Eddie and his brother Alex and you know the Van Halen crew did not stroll well, way back in the early seventies when he was a, a young guy. As a matter of fact, if you if you drive past Pasadena City College, they have these big um, sort of sort of awnings hanging around, and all of the famous John Singleton has one there. John Singleton went to Pasadena City College, uh, uh, and, and, and you know, and one of them is Eddie Van Halen's. You know, so anybody famous uh, who became famous who went to Pasadena College has one of those, and Eddie's has been hanging mm. for like forty five years. So you know, that's it. I mean, it's it, it it's so sad. Uh, age sixty five, uh, throat cancer, um, and he's been struggling for you know he he fought it off once and. You know what he said it was? He said, because most people assume, you know, Eddie hard drinking, hard smoking, all that. Yeah. Quit drinking and smoking actually many, many years ago, more than a decade ago. Um, uh, uh, Eddie said that uh, the tongue cancer that he got was from holding metal guitar picks. He used nickel and uh, bronze guitar picks all the time. And he used to hold him in his mouth all the time. Now, if you if you watch many many videos of Eddie Van Halen on you know stage, he's, yeah, he's standing there with those metal guitar picks, and uh, and he said that that's exactly where his cancer developed, and he did it for forty years, you know. Yeah. And anyway, you know, and and uh, and but but no, it wasn't the hard drinking and smoking. He he feels that that the very specific sort of cancer that he got came from forty years of holding those metal guitar picks in his mouth. Oh man! Uh, very odd That's... thing. Very odd thing that. But then there it is, right? Well, one of the uh, one of the great musicians, uh, certainly of our of our day. I yeah. mean, uh, he reinvented the guitar, and you know, there's part of me that that imagines that uh, that that he and Prince are, yeah. are having a, having having a, having a, a duel right now to see who can uh, who, who can kick the licks the best up there. But, uh, Eddie, uh, Eddie's one of the reasons why why, why I'm a guitar player. Uh, you know, that and I was a yeah. lousy drummer. So you yeah. know, <laughs> well, and we were talking before the show too, and 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 uh, I'll let you go off on this a bit. You know, somebody was talking to you about about the Oscar qualification this year. You had yeah. some thoughts. Yeah, yeah, interesting question. An interview I was in, engaged in, and they asked me about that. You know, well, if first of all, uh, what films? What will be the, the the factor that decides what films qualify for an Oscar? All, I mean, pretty much all films. I mean, obviously March up until March. Since March, I should say, uh, all films uh, have more or less uh, been um, relegated to some sort of a streaming service, including many films that were meant to be theatrical. Films that we know were meant to be theatrical. A few made it into theaters. Tenet made it into some theaters in some places in North America, obviously. Uh, uh, Lots of other films have been playing overseas in theater um, for several months now. And then, of course, there are the many, many films like Mulan and uh, uh, Universal was the first one to full, to pull a feature that was meant to be theatrically released and and put it online. So um, it's a good question. It's a good question. I'm not sure the Academy has made any announcements about that yet. These are the criteria for a film to be considered for an Academy Award this year. Um, and, you know, then you have all of these films that have been streaming right alongside 
um, uh, the Mulans and what and, and 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 whatnot on streaming platforms. Some of them damn good movies, but many of them never meant to be theatrically released True. films. You know, you know, these were all yeah. these were films that were always meant to be Netflix films. Um, uh, but but more or less, these films are all swimming in the same water. So what are we going to do to decide which ones uh, are eligible for an Academy Award? It is it is a vexing question, and you and I both know since we you know we we're we're kind of on the vanguard of this because doing Film Week uh, normally in a, in a non-pandemic scenario, you're reviewing things that have to be theatrical openers in the city of Los Angeles, or at least in Southern California area. Generally, if something's opening, you know, for a week in Riverside, well, we may still cover it if it's, if it's worth it. Yeah. Um, but, but now it's sort of, everything is fair game. So normally you get a rundown of, okay, here are 20, 25 films that are opening theatrically that qualify. Let's pick 10. Now it's a list of about 48, 50, sometimes 60 films. And you look at that, and it's it's like I you you just just sort of throw your hands up, and you're like, I don't, how do I even whittle this down? Because some of this stuff, obviously, okay, the big budget Netflixy things, okay, mm. fair enough. The studio stuff, fair enough. But then you have a whole you you have like thirty movies that if they had gone to theaters, you would have covered them, but now they're not. So you have no idea, you know, how you're gonna how you're gonna break this down, and you it, 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 the publicists are kind of pulling their hair out too, yeah, because now now they don't they don't know how to get their stuff covered. It's really uh, it's kind of a thing. So I don't know how the academy is going to handle it. I will say this: um, I I have more respect, even though I'm disappointed that they're pushing off Bond, pushing off Wonder Woman. I have more respect for those than I do for for Disney electing to uh, put mm. Soul out, the Pixar film Soul, straight to Disney Plus. That I find unbelievably upsetting. Um, this is let, let's let's keep in mind, Soul is a Pixar film that everyone has been waiting for for a year. For a year, they first started peddling that thing summer of last year with teasers, and it looked beautiful. And the the everyone's waiting for it. There has never been a Pixar film, short or feature, mm. that was not screened in movie theaters. Every single short and feature that Pixar has ever made, apart from the Pixar Spark shorts, which is a, a separate thing, every short, proper Pixar short and feature has screened for an audience in a theater. This will be the first one that doesn't. And I'm 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 thinking, okay, that's upsetting in and of itself because yeah. Pixar films are made for audiences. But this is the first Pixar character that is black, and the theme of it is that in the in the hereafter, in in the afterlife, race goes away. Mm. Now that's that is a, a rather extraordinary and profound thing, and to my mind, that's a movie that needs to be seen by audiences. That's a movie people need to see with strangers, and 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 you know talk about with strangers. That's an audience experience concept. That's not something I want to be watching at home with two or three other people that I already know and, and I'm related to. I mean, that's 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 designed to bring people together. Why would Disney go out of the way to make a movie designed to bring people together and then elect to release it in a way that does not? That's what I don't get. It's a, it's it's look. It's a tough situation, and, 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 and we know what it is. I will say this about Disney. They announced they announced just the other day, uh, day before yesterday, that if henceforth they will be considering all content 
in, in the context of the streaming services that they have at hand in terms of distribution, that each individual piece of content uh, they will be evaluating without theatrical release as a consideration in the green lighting and production and marketing and distribution of that content. They've informed their marketing groups for each, for each of these projects, projects uh, in, in production now and being greenlit. Do not concern yourself with uh, the, the, the idea of theatrical release for any of these things. Set mm -hmm. your release dates, decide your, market, your marketing material, all uh, dependent on which one of the platforms that, you know, they have, there are a number of Disney platforms, obviously, um, um, yeah. that we have at our, our disposal and, uh, and, uh, and, and take the notion of theatrical release out of the equation. So they've applied this notion to everything at Disney. They're pretending like theatrical distribution does not exist uh, at the mm -hmm. moment, um, which is, you know, might, might be rational, Wade. It might be rational. I think it's short-term rational, but I think it's it's long-term destructive. I mean, I understand that Disney's real concern right now is they they got to get some cash flow because they they're bleeding cash because of the the theme park closures. Mm. And uh, Bob Iger, you know, was part of uh, the the governor's task force here in California and resigned mm. um, because they can't come to an agreement as to uh, under what conditions Disneyland can reopen. They're really angry. Disney's really angry about it. And, um, you know, it breaks my heart because the live shows that, that my daughter loved at Disneyland, loved Mickey and the Magical Map and Frozen, Disneyland just pulled the plug on them. The yeah. cast have been let go. Uh, millions of people will never again get to see those shows. I mean, that just breaks my heart. And um, I'm thinking of all the unemployed people now. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, they got it. They, 20, 20, Disney, Disney's... It, it's 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 trickling down, and a lot of people are getting hurt, and Disney's bleeding cash, and they got to do something. So I get it short term, but um, you know, I, I think long term, you got to get the theaters back open, you got to get uh, get the movies back in there because that's that's what people want to see. They want to see big movies on the big screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just look, it has to be, it has to be safe, and that's uh, it, it's a circumstance. It's a circumstance. So in answer that question, I mean, I, I guess we didn't answer the question about the Academy Awards and who and how. Yeah, what, we don't know. I, it's really, it's really not possible um, um, uh, to do that. And I think that, you know, sooner rather than later, the Academy and all of the others uh, sort of award. Uh, and we, us, we, the Los Angeles yeah. Film Critics Association, we're going to have to make a decision about we that. We do. We we have we will have to. And they're going to they're going to be marketing a ton of stuff to us. And we're going to have to really whittle it down because just doing what we usually do. Hey, everybody, go on to the Google Docs and uh, write down your suggestions. We're going to have 800 movies yeah. uh, uh, listed there. I mean, it's it's not going to help. Everyone's everyone's seeing different stuff and everyone's going to suggest different stuff. And we're going to have to come up with a standard to, to, to narrow that down. Yeah, because for, for us, uh, you know, uh, some measure of theatrical release, you know, in the Los, Los Angeles Film Critics Association, obviously, uh, was 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 a criteria, too. You know, that that's uh, but, you know, anyway, that's not that's all gone. So. All right, man. Anyway, uh, well, we're, let let's get into it. We got uh, we got a ton of stuff. We're gonna try to 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 pare down through it. The the uh, the flow of product is slowly ramping back up again, and um, we also have an interview we're gonna conclude the show with today. Uh, Lee Renee, author Lee Renee, who has written a terrific Hollywood novel called Mitzi of the Ritz. Mm takes place in those those uh, those early movie days uh early early sound late silent period 
Um, it's a it's a it's a wonderful wonderful novel uh, of the studio era that really uh, that integrates a lot of great observations and wonderful historical research. She did a great job. So yeah. we spent some time with Lee Renee, um, a, a wonderful interview that we will conclude the show with. And uh, in the meantime, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna start off and just blow through some some um, licensed. Uh, Kino titles here. Alrighty, brother. Uh, starting with the Kino Lorber Univer uh, Universal Pictures collaboration here, the Reginald Denny collection. Um, this is not Reginald Denny, uh, more commonly known of, of recent years from the LA riot period. This yeah, is this no. is the silent era British actor Reginald Denny, um, who was kind of a uh, he's sort of fallen off the the map a little bit. But Reginald Denny was uh, was sort of the suave guy. They didn't really have. Um, silent comics in in england at the time so uh they they had sort of this um this british gentleman was was what he was kind of what he he forged as his persona anyway these are three silent films with reginald denny and they are all really really charming they uh they have audio commentaries on all three of them with uh, anthony slide film historian and um I, I think the most interesting to me is what happened to jones which uh, is is really really very fun. It's about a guy before he gets married. He's at a he's at a, a bachelor party and uh, they're gambling and it gets raided and then you know all all hell breaks loose and it's the aftermath of that. It's actually very very fun, very clever, very funny, nicely done. So silent film buffs, Reginald Denny collection is really really worth checking out. Uh, we have a bunch from Zeitgeist, who uh, releases now through um, uh, through Kino, uh, Beyond the Visible, Hilma af Klint is uh, a really a pretty rock-solid documentary um, that revisits the importance of, uh, of, of, the, of, as far as an artist, I, I don't even know how to even get into the, the background of this. If you're a fan of abstract art, um, you probably know the name of uh, Hilma of Klint, but if you don't, it's not going to mean a whole lot. So I would say... Um, prepare yourself for it because what it's basically saying is that um hilma was the pioneer in abstract art and that she uh, achieved a lot of the things and pioneered a lot of the the uh the techniques that men did afterwards mm. and took credit for and for all kinds of fascinating reasons in her life and her biography is all sorted out here um you you they revisit this and they compare the paintings and it's really very very interesting and they make a very per persuasive case that she deserves the place in history that a lot of men have received uh, in her stead for decades um also from zeitgeist ken loach film sorry we missed you which is um uh one of the better ken loach films in in a number of recent years it is goes again a a working class family story oh, yeah. uh centering centering around you know it's a it's a domestic tale it 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 traffics in a lot of the themes that loach always traffics in uh but uh you know the 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 people are not uh, pegs they are not pawns they they are real people they are very well forged out it has a great audio commentary with uh ken loach and uh his his co-writing partner and um, I would I would say if you're a Ken Loach fan, definitely check it out. If you're not really a Ken Loach fan, um, you know, it's probably not your cup of tea. You know, Sherman uh, was in a Ken Loach film. Was he really? Bread and Roses, late 90s. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, Sherman's in that movie. Oh, my like, goodness. Actor, Sherman. That's, that's going back a ways. Yeah. Wow. 
Um, we also have Recorder, the Marion Stokes project from the Zeitgeist. Oh, I, I, um, I love that movie. That that is a really brave movie. <laughs> I mean, it's really it's kind of a kind of a crazy risk. Right? I remember watching um, her on PBS. Those, those PBS shows that she would do um, aired in St. Louis uh, when I was a kid. And she recorded. She recorded t- television all day, every day for years. One of the one of one of the first women, uh, one of the first people to own a Betamax and VHS yeah. machines. She was also one of the first in, in investors, believe it or not, in uh, Steve Jobs and Apple. Um, uh, she married this rich guy later in, yeah. in, in her life, but then she, and- which is fascinating, because she started as a communist. As a, yeah, you know, it's, and they, <laughs> right. and it was like this interracial couple, and 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 and, and this whole thing. So such an interesting, but what she was, she had this obsessive disorder that you know led to this yeah. documentary. A little bit on that, a little bit on the uh, on the spectrum. Yeah, uh, I, I would say too. Um, but yeah, it, it, the, the funny thing is, it all begins with the Iranian hostage crisis, yeah. and then she just records literally everything, and it all it all winds up on seventy thousand tapes. And um, what a what an amazing what an amazing fascinating wild adventure that is. Um, Lightning over Braddock, a Rust Bowl fantasy uh, and collected shorts, the films of Tony Buba. That's a mouthful. <laughs> So it's two discs, it's two discs, and uh, this is a little bit in the same vein with, uh, with, with Recorder. So Tony Buba is, is a guy from Braddock, Pennsylvania, who for 50 years um, basically has, has created, he's sort of the archivist of his, his town, his hometown. And um, it, it it's kind of depressing and funny all at the same time. You know, he's a really fascinating character and he has, uh, he, you know, he, he made these shorts and he's just a chronicler. He's like a, a filmmaking version of a street photographer is maybe the best way to put it. Uh, so anyway, this is uh, on two discs. This is lightning over Braddock from 19, uh, 88 Braddock Chronicles uh, one contains everything he did from 1972 to 1980. And then Braddock Chronicles two on disc two is everything from 1981 to 85. And then there are various shorts from, you know, the eighties to the present uh, after that. It, this is six hours of, of, uh, of Braddock, Pennsylvania history where, you know, factories close and it just, it's, it's sort of a, uh, a history of how, how the industrial East has declined. Mm. But, at the same time, it's also an amazing piece of filmmaking and just a, a unique individual style. It's really a fascinating movie. So uh, I, 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 I don't know that I recommend this to everybody because it's obviously not everybody's taste, but Lightning Over Braddock, A Rust Bowl Fantasy and Collected Shorts, the films of Tony Buba, B-U-B-A. Uh, if it sounds like your cup of tea, check it out. Uh, something weird and Kino Classics have been releasing a lot of uh, great old exploitation films and, uh, you know, the old... Uh, uh, marijuana and uh, and 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 sex uh, cautionary hygiene movies that were you know so that we kind of look at now and laugh a little bit about anyway we've got volumes uh, four through seven now uh, of this whole fascinating series and they're all kind of double features uh, the titles speak for themselves so let me let me start off with four. <laughs> um, Four has Dwayne Esper's Narcotic. Dwayne Esper, we, of course, talked oh, yeah. about in the uh, film Schlock that uh, you and I worked on, Ray Green's film. Uh, Dwayne Esper's Narcotic, uh, as well as Marijuana, H-U-A-N-A, Weed with Roots in Hell. 
<laughs> uh, that's on that. And I know you're you're loving this. And then um, the then on volume five is tomorrow's children, a drama of human sterilization, along with Child Bride. And the series of the uh, that these are part is it the Forbidden Fruit series, Forbidden yeah. Fruit, the Golden Age, the exploitation picture. It's a big mouthful. Let's see the Forbidden Fruit series, uh, volume six is uh she should have said no <laughs> you have to you have to say it just like that she should have said no exclamation point and then in parentheses wild weed <laughs> it's so it. classic it's so priceless oh, and then the other one is uh the devil's sleep and then in parentheses hopped up yeah man <laughs> they, they, they really had it in uh, they really had it in for ganja man Ex- Expose of the pet pill racket. Oh, well, man. <laughs> and then and then the last one. Uh, this is my favorite. Um, uh, test tube babies and guilty parents. And they even put the, I mean, the, the, the artwork they put here is the great, it's all fabulous. It's like, you know, no one under high school age admitted. Well, you know, back in the day, the only reason they put a sign up there that said no one under high school age admitted to was to make sure that you re- you filled it up with high school kids. That's not that's from 1948, man. That is that is just wow. It's crazy. It's just, I mean, it's and it's again, you know, uh, this stuff was serious at the time. Really? It's just so much fun to look at now. It's so funny. It just kills me. Um, and then real quickly, uh, a whole bunch of relatively uh, newish stuff from uh from kino lorber these are all kind of you know it's indie stuff um some of it is from you know like metrograph and and a few others um it's all worth kind of checking out i'll go through it pretty quickly here the mountain uh is rick alverson's psychosurgical odyssey uh this was made by kino lorber with uh vice pictures uh vice studios ty sheridan and jeff goldblum in it uh, you know, it's this is uh, kind of a. Uh, it's set in the 1950s. It's sort of surreal. Uh, it's a little bit experimental. It, it's worth checking out for Jeff Goldblum. Mm-hmm. Uh, Susan Sontag's uh, duet for Cannibals. I wouldn't necessarily recommend to anybody unless you're a Sontag fan. This is from Metrograph Pictures. Um, you know, if you, I mean, it's it's strictly for Sontag buffs. Other, you know, she's very very acquired taste. Mm. Uh, Jean Michel Basquiat in Downtown Eighty One, which uh, is a great little time capsule. Uh, one of the few cases where you'll actually see him proper in a movie, and tons of great uh, music on this and uh, appearances here by you know young Debbie Harry mm. and Amos Poe and Debbie Mazur, and you know it, it's a it's a great uh, great step back in time and, and and kind of you know it it what an enigmatic fascinating figure Basquiat was yeah and that know? film that you're looking that film came out in 2000 so it was a precursor yeah. to a number Gosh, of is it that Brady, old Brady and Child yeah that's that film's yeah wow. uh, and, and three or four Basquiat sort of docs that have come out since then that was sort of interesting yeah really great stuff uh kind of a a, a cool um uh, interracial western set in the 1880s thousand pieces of gold oh, yeah. this is from uh, indie collect and uh i, I really a, a really an old-fashioned wonderful kind of classic film with a wonderful wonderful lead ro- uh, performance by rosalind chow um rosalind chow and, and chris cooper together in this it looks beautiful it's just it's an old-fashioned movie 
And uh, I think it's got, it's just, it's really delightful. It has a great audio commentary with Nancy Kelly and uh, producer Kenji Yamamoto. Um, you Love know, that movie. The, it's a great movie. It get, you know, I mean, movies that sort of get into some of the little cultural nuances of the Western period that we often forget were a reality. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, beautiful Nancy thing. Kelly directed that movie. Yeah, good movie. It's good. Um, Azazel Jacobs made a movie called Mama's Man, which uh, came out some years ago. Uh, this was what? Uh, I want to say 2010. Feels like 2008. 2008. Um, a little bit creepy. I, I, I had to review this at the time. I, you know, it's basically about a, 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 an older man with a midlife crisis who's a big overgrown mama's boy. And it's, yeah. a, it's a little creepy, yeah. uh, but uh, it's got, you know, it's got its, uh, it's got its weird little indie moments. Uh, the world is full of secrets. Um, kind of, uh, it's not a horror film. It's just a, a weird movie about girls telling scary stories to each other and then it kind of then it kind of sort of becomes more of a psychological thriller um i it, it's experimental in many respects uh also has an audio commentary by the director graham swan um uh you know it's it, as, as far as indie films with very few low budgets go it's, it's not bad the Good Times Kid, uh, also by Azazel Jacobs with Diaz and Gerardo Naranjo. Um, again, more of a Jacobs kind of super minimalist filmmaking here. Um, it, it's it's low budget. It's um, better than Mama's Man. Uh, it's uh, by, I don't know, marginally. It was made a few years earlier. Um kind of a kind of a, a story of desperate street people um but through a comedic lens kind of you know people on the margins and uh trying to sort of find the humanity in in people who sort of can't find a way of belonging anywhere um in some respects it's been compared to a jim jarmusch movie jim jarmusch and, and aki karzmaki are the, mm -hmm. the the filmmakers is most often compared to i it, i would say if you like this is how it goes. If you like Mama's Man, you'll like The Good Times Kid. But if you don't like Mama's Man, you'll probably still be okay with The Good Times Kid. Mm -hmm. And then uh, last little batch here before I turn it over to Tim. These are all films from Menemsha Films, uh, who also distributes through, uh, through Kino. Menemsha, that's M-E-N-E-M-S-H-A, films.com. You can get more information on the... Uh, on the the company, uh, one of them is the uh, the German film. How about Adolf? Uh, now, this is a little peculiar to me because this story uh, it very quickly occurred to me as I was watching it. I was like, "Wait a minute! I saw a French film. Ah, uh, there was this exact same story, yeah. and uh, it didn't it didn't give everything away in the title. The French film was called um, uh, What's in a Name, uh, and uh, so." I I'm going to recommend the French version over this one, to be honest, which is much funnier because the French are funny people. As someone who is half German, <laughs> got to tell you, we're not funny people. Uh, German, there are some very funny German comedies. I'm not going to deny it, but for the most part, German comedy kind of a contradiction in terms, a little bit oxymoronic, and uh, this isn't quite modulated uh, as well as it should be. So. Um, I did not realize that the uh, that the German film existed. So uh, even though the French film is technically a remake, I'm going to suggest you go with the uh, the French film. 
Um, and then let's see, The Last Supper by Florian uh, Frerix. Uh, I remember when this uh, came out and I uh, didn't particularly care for it at the time. I kind of uh, have come around to it. This is about a uh, a dinner, a, di a family dinner, a, a German Jewish family on the that has a dinner on the day that Hitler comes to power, and um, it's a little bit like uh, my dinner with Andre, set during a really, really desperate moment in time. Yeah. It it felt a little didactic to me at the time. Revisiting it now, I'm a little bit more inclined to be. I always love that movie, but I, yeah, but then again, you know, Wallace Shawn and oh, like my dinner that. with Andre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, which, which I, I, I've also come around on. I used to think it was super pretentious, but I, I kind of, I've come around on it a little bit. Uh, I guess, you know, you get older, you're willing to deal with that. Uh, An Act of Defiance. This is also from Menemsha Films. Act of Defiance takes place in South Africa in 1963. Um, basically uh, centering around, Man Nelson Mandela is a, is a character in this, and it's, uh, it's looking at a particular moment in time, uh, and a particular series of political events that transpired relative to apartheid and, and all of that. Um, it's a very, very good film. Uh, I don't know why it uh, isn't more famous sort of internationally, um, but it's really worth checking out, if, especially if you are, are. And you know what's fascinating, too? Um, uh, I, I had not realized apartheid didn't actually come to pass until well after World War II. Oh, really? I did not know that either. I think it was like 48 or 49 something like that there was no apartheid in south africa going back in the 1920s 30s uh, that period world war ii didn't exist i did not know that that is absolutely fascinating yeah i i, I always was under the impression that apartheid you know was like oh yeah, yeah baked into the... baked into it no yeah. it's a it's a it's a 20th century innovation after the afrikaners got power from the english down there the afrikaners introduced it it's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway, uh, Budapest Noir by Ava Gardos is a, a wonderful, cool, kind of uh, hip, modern noir. It's a Hungarian movie. Uh, it takes place uh, just on the eve of World War II. And uh, Hungarian movies are so quirky. I've, if you've ever been to Hungary, you understand why. It's a, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a society with a lot of baggage, let's just put it that way. And when they bake that into their art and their music, it's really, really interesting. So um, check it out. It's like a classic American noir and a classic uh, German expressionist silent film uh, all wrapped into one. And uh, it's beautifully photographed. It's a really cool story and uh, with some great little political edges to it, commenting on the uh, not only on Hungary in 1936, but on what it would become in the Cold War era. And then uh, an amazing first film here by a filmmaker named uh, Sivia Barkai Yaakov. This is a, uh, an Israeli film called Red Cow, and it's really a very, very interesting uh, debut film. It's, uh, it, it's very allegorical, mm. uh, and uh, it's all about this... Um, this this girl and her you know she has red hair and her her father has a calf which he he actually uh assigns all kinds of religious significance to he sees the calf not just as a calf but kind of a uh, a symbol of all kinds of uh religious issues and they, there are all of these weird family issues that are wrapped up in the hair and the calf and 
it, 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 when you dig kind of underneath the surface, you you find a lot of really really interesting comments on Israeli society, and mm -hmm. it, it is uh, it's a very very interesting film. Red Cow, and then Crescendo is the last one here. I'm going to talk about. Um, Crescendo is also a very very fine film. This is a German movie. Uh, not funny, thank goodness. <laughs> uh, that centers around a conductor and uh, who. Um, and he's uh, he's going to put oh I don't want to give it away there there's a particular orchestra that he has um, he's going to put together and um, it's a problem to a lot of people that he wants to have an orchestra of this particular composition and it is significant it's got all kinds of historical and cultural and sort sort of other uh, aspects to it so um, but it's this youth orchestra he wants to put together and there's a lot of pushback. And um, obviously, a lot of drama that that, that uh, entails with the various individuals that are that are a part of it. Um, it's uh, some beautiful music, very intense filmmaking, good solid film. Uh, it's called Crescendo by a director named Dror Zahavi. So there it is. Yeah, it's a bunch of cool stuff from Kino this week, um, and I might have might have some more. Tim, what are we gonna? What else are we gonna hit? Well, let's uh, let's do some uh, relatively speaking new cinema. If you if you feel okay. like it, we'll knock off a few of those uh, that I have sort of lined up. Uh, beginning with one that happens to be about a pandemic. <laughs> it's, ah. it's called Before the Fire, and it's about a pandemic. A global pandemic hits. Uh, this young woman decides she's gonna she's an actress and she's gonna skip it back to her rural to her rural home home there in the middle of nowhere. And she gets back there and uh, some dude who she used to date from back in the day uh, decides that this is, he's going to take a shot at her again. And, you know, and she, she should have stayed, she should have stayed in LA with the pandemic is basically what this movie says, uh, because this guy's an a-hole. Uh, <laughs> wicked little movie though. I rather enjoyed it. So uh, before the fire 2020, um, uh, you let me know, Wade, if any of these happen to have any anything particularly interesting. Will do. In the terms of, in terms of you know, um, and then um, I'm, I'm I really did dig this. I had I saw this one, Batman: Death in a Family. Um, it's, it's pretty good. Uh, it's it's, it's not bad. It, it's I an interactive it. one. It's an inter so basically, what you can do uh, is you can decide which direction uh, the the character that would be Robin, um, uh, uh, Jason. Todd, Red Hood, uh, Red Light, yeah. Uh, yeah, which way his character goes. Um, uh, and that's kind of cool. I kind of dug that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not bad. It reminded me a little bit of uh, uh, what was what was the old kind of Don Bluth animated video game, uh, Dragon's Lair? Was yeah. Dragon's Lair, yeah. that old video game? That they, yeah, it had a little, it, I, I felt like I was playing that again, except in a Batman world. But yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, great movie. Anyway, anyway Bruce Greenwood does the voice of uh, Bruce Wayne Batman. Uh, in this series, and Gary Cole does the voice of Two Face. So great, great voice, great, great uh, voice actors in that series. Then there is this um, um, uh, musical version of Valley Girl uh, that that, I, that came out last year. I didn't see it then, um, uh, and 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 when, when I at first I didn't realize that it was a musical because I and I got really really pissy because I'm like, why in the world would you re remake Valley Girl? <laughs> uh, uh, it's it's perfect, particularly when it's set in the '80s. Anyway, well, what they do here. It's a musical, and it's using all that new wave music and all of that kind of stuff. Of course, all that music was in the movie in the first place, uh, but you know, it was just on the radio. Nevertheless, they did a musical version. Uh, Rachel Lee Goldenberg, uh, the young director here, of Valley Girl, an iconic movie from you know people of our generation, John Hughes film. Um, although I do understand that we're supposed to take a, a look at most of those John Hughes films, many of those John Hughes films through a 
more sophisticated. Well, a historical lens. Yeah, so which is fine. Yeah. I suppose we can do that, but I don't really want to. David Ayer <laughs> uh, made this movie called The Tax Collector. Oh yeah, it's 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 a steel book too. I yeah. can point that out. This is a really nice steel book. David Ayer, of course, who of course uh, did uh, I wrote End of Watch, uh, the, 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 the Suicide Squad, Squad. Hard yeah. Times, you know, uh, yeah. uh, and you know, so a couple of those. So it's a steel book, Wicked. Yeah, it's really it's really cool. It's a, it's a real nice steel book. Uh, Bobby Soto and Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf going full hard in this. He's kind of you know trying to be an action star, and it kind of works to be honest. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's David Ayer, I think going as, as deep as he's gone and, you know, as, as raw as he's gone probably since training day, yeah. um, which of course he didn't direct, he but he wrote, he wrote yeah. and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a nice steel book. And yeah. End of watch my favorite David Ayer movie so far. That's concerned, but anyway, kind of cool. Um, um, uh, that cutthroat city, RZA, uh, direct, oh, RZA. Uh, direct, directing this movie, RZA. You know, hey man, uh, if you figure out how to go from Wu Tang Clan and you know in the, in the, in the streets of of, uh, of of Brooklyn and and the Bronx, and uh, you know here thirty years later, you're a you're a major director or a director anyway. Uh, so, you know, Andy and I always like to mention Andy Klein, yeah? our good friend and, and colleague Andy Klein. Andy Klein did an audio commentary with RZA for for I forget what film it was. It wasn't something RZA had done, but they 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 were pulled in to do an audio commentary for some martial arts movie together. Oh, to this day, sense. that makes sense. Andy, Andy had the great the time of his life. He and I've done commentaries with Andy, and, <laughs> and he, he never has the time of his life with me. But but man, he said he just he just had such a, a blast with RZA. RZA made the whole thing so fun. Yeah, so much fun. Yeah, I mean, well, him and RZA, they, they they would both know everything there is to know about. You know, yeah, all, yeah. All, oh, the only yeah. other person who needed to be there was you. Uh, this, yeah. thing, this thing is set uh, right after Katrina. These these these. Uh, Young friends go back. Everything's wiped out down there in the ninth ward. They get involved with this guy who wants to <coughs> them. Excuse me, to pull off a heist uh, to try to set their financial situ- situation right. Look, this the cast of this thing is um hello cast. You got Ethan Hawke, you got Wesley Snipes, you got Isaiah Washington, Terrence Howard. Holy uh, cow. You got Joel David Moore in this movie. You got Rob Morgan in this movie. You got T.I. in this movie. You got Denzel Whitaker in this movie. Denzel Whitaker is a young uh, actor who happened to be in an acting class that I used to teach some 10 or 15 years ago when I was teaching over there at school. No, uh, uh, yeah, named after Denzel Washington and played uh, his first role, uh, one that I actually coached him for, was in Denzel Washington's uh, film, uh, the, 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 the Great Debate. Uh, no kidding. He played Denzel Washington's son in that movie, which was kind of weird because Denzel was casting a kid named Denzel. Uh, but anyway, Denzel in the movie. So this is a really wicked uh, 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 cast in this movie. I mean, you know, and it's a it's a it's a it's a fairly it's a fairly interesting movie set set in uh, right after Katrina. Uh, it's a, it's a good, solid, well constructed heist movie. RZA, you know, acquits himself fairly well. I got one here, uh, the Secret Garden, the latest version of the Secret Garden, oh which I, which I, I don't think is as absolutely necessary. I still prefer the uh, the oh, the yeah. more recent, the previous one from the nineties. Um, they go back to the forties, I think. Margaret O'Brien. Yeah, this, one of those. that's that's what's a little weird about this. I mean, I I, I kind of get it. I think it sort of works. They 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 move the story into the nineteen forties so that the Indian angle of it can be a little bit politically connected to the Indian, um, to to Indian independence and Gandhi and all of that, mm-hmm. uh, the war with Pakistan. But um, 
I'm not sure that it, it really changes the story all that much because the story takes place in England, but it's still, it's charming. I wish it were a little bit more charming, but uh, it's kind of kind of hard to go wrong with the story of kids and magic and friendship and, uh, you know, all of the little uh, ins and outs. Colin Firth plays the, uh, the, the you know, the, the grumpy dad. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, yet another version of the Secret Garden. I, I'd say stick with the uh, the old black and white version and the one from the '90s. Yeah. Uh, uh, before you go to this one, but uh, you can't go wrong. It's on Blu-ray and uh, it's got uh, digital code on it. Although because this is Universal, I would have expected it to be movies anywhere, and uh, I I find it sort of curious that it is not. Mm. American Pie presents. Girls yeah. rule. Twenty years worth of American Pie films now, folks. If you're wondering, uh, and I got to tell you, <laughs> the Rotten Tomato scores go down. Actually, <laughs> as the more of these movies, but the, the cool thing about this one, despite the fact that it's directed by a boy, directed by Mike Elliott, is that it, uh, the, you know, it's it's the girls doing all of the ludicrous things the boys did. Stickler and company uh, in those original American Pie movies. These almost always come with some really cool stuff on those DVD. Uh, releases man is it a blu-ray it is not it is a strictly dvd and uh i find it really fascinating who shows up in this thing too i mean i did not watch it but i'm just looking at the cast right now um i mean barry boswick <laughs> no it's is barry boswick in this thing That's yeah utterly good oh my goodness yeah okay. yeah he's in the eugene levy role okay you know good grief it's just all right all the swapping wow. the that's crazy. Um, cats and Dogs 3, Paws Unite. So we're into the third one of the Cats and Dogs movies. I suppose oh, there's goodness. a certain amount of charm in these films, or they wouldn't keep making them. But again, the Rotten Tomato score goes down exponentially um, every time they make one. Uh, but there it is. Again, another Cats and Dogs movie. Uh, some, 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 some decent voice talent uh, in, in the film. And uh, I suppose it's funny. If you're into the whole, if you have a kid, and you know they've been in the house for the last six months, Hit them, another, <laughs> hit them with another Cats and Dogs movie. See what happens. <laughs> I think that would probably be okay. Uh, the Dorman. The oh, Dorman. Yeah. Did you see? Did you see the Dorman? Uh, no, I don't remember that one. Dorman is uh, Dorman's not it's not John, bad. Jean Reno and Ruby Rose. Yeah, Jean Reno and Ruby Rose. Uh, it's not bad actually. Um, I, I, you know, Ruby Rose, of course, just walked off of the uh, Batwoman. Oh, yeah. yeah. After one season, which I don't really understand, that was going to turn her life around. Well, and I guess she got she, injured pretty bad, she, and she was that injury freaked her out. Yeah, you know, and I guess that can yeah. happen. Yeah, but uh, anyway, uh, she is she, you know, she's going for the action girl thing here, and I and I hope it happens for her because she's a sharp actress and she's got a great presence. Um, she plays a marine. Uh, who is a former Marine who's now just working at a, as, a, as a, you know, a door woman at a, uh, uh, a New York City high-rise apartment building. And um, it goes a little bit diehard there at a certain point when uh, suddenly these art thieves show up, led by Jean Reno, who's going full heavy here. And uh, there you go. The whole thing is very, very uh, focused. And um, uh, it's kind of cool to see what would normally be a mano a mano be a mano a woman uh, movie, and she holds it down really, really well. I mean, it's it is it's something clearly I would say that was probably written for a man. Mm. And at some point, somebody said, "Hey, why not Ruby Rose? Could we do it for is a vehicle for Ruby Rose?" Just like they did, you know, originally Salt was supposed to yeah. be a Tom Cruise vehicle, and then they redid that for Angelina Jolie. Mm -hmm. Somebody said, "Yeah, sure, why the hell not?" And I think good for them. I love, I love that you know they can pivot these things. So that's my, I'm guessing there. I don't think this was originally a 
a female role, but um, they certainly make it work as one. Um, I, this this little movie here, uh, uh, the, the the secret dare to dream, which is about the oh another another one of the secret movies. Yeah, and, 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 and dude, this is an Andy Tennant film. You know, and, no kidding. Yeah, you know, yeah, the Hitch, the Home yeah. Alabama, uh, Ever at Cinderella, Fool's Gold, the Andy Tennant. You know, big movies. You know, back in the day. Uh, but but nevertheless, anyway, this is this is this is about this woman who uh, the, she's a widow and she meets uh, she meets this guy who subscribes to this sort of philosophy of positive thinking. Katie Holm uh, in this movie, Josh Lucas, yeah. Uh, yeah, Jerry O'Connell again, you know, a decent decent cast in this movie, uh, and directed by Andy Tennant. Um, um, so you know, I don't know if you're into uh, if you I suppose these films uh, you know, strike a chord with a certain group of people. Anything on there? Anything like a like a I don't know. Uh, commentary or anything like that? No. Uh, not really. No, I'm looking at. There's like a featurette. That's it. Nothing else. Interesting. Those movies yeah. are always, you know, I don't. Know, but they they have it. But Andy Tennant. That's an Andy Tennant film, dude. Crazy. Uh, uh, but you know, well, he's still he's still there. Good for him. He's still working. Yeah, yeah. I guess you can talk um, about it. I've got the I've got the movie here called The Honeymoon Phase uh, from Dark Sky Films, which is. Really, really uh, fascinating and more than a little disturbing, actually. It makes me want to kind of um, go full analog in the house. <laughs> uh, it does. It, this is kind of, it's, it's, it's not really a science fiction film, but it's kind of science fiction-esque. Uh, it's about a couple that is promised $50,000 to become part of this study, this, this project. Oh, the one where the they have to live in the house. That's it. They got to live in this smart house. And it's an experiment like to study the effect of smart house technology on fa on couples and how it affects the relationship and whatnot. But of course, you know, it, it, it wouldn't be a movie if, if they just had a really great time and got paid $50,000 and went about their way. So of course, everything goes south in a hard way. And um, it, 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 it takes some really nasty turns, but um uh it's really really well done it's incredibly well done it feels like something that m night Shyamalan probably should have should have done at mm. one point in his career but it's too late now interesting the the silent scene um i, I think i saw this film for, for for film week as a matter of fact uh it, it was one that made it in, into the theaters just before we stopped uh doing uh you know the, the show in studio yeah. uh anyway it's about this guy he's this hunter he's sort of a reformed hunter actually a bit of an alcoholic and years and years and years ago, his daughter went missing. Um, uh, since then, uh, he's been very much against hunting, and he, and, he, and he takes care of this reserve and and stops folks from poaching on this reserve. Um, young women start going missing uh, in this. Area. Oh yeah, and and uh, and uh, it's very possible that uh, whoever is doing this might have kidnapped his daughter years ago. He gets involved with this this uh, female deputy, and they go off and try to figure out what the hell is going on with all this kind of stuff. Fairly intense little thriller. Uh, you know, well constructed, well acted, uh, and pretty creepy. Uh, a couple of interesting little twists at the back end of it. Uh, so I, I could go ahead and you know, I could go ahead and rec recommend that movie. Tell tell me tell me whether or not you you think this is a correct statement. I kind of feel like Nikolai Coster Waldau. Yeah, who of course the, was in Game of Thrones for you. Yes, I kind of feel like with movies like this, he is forging himself a career as the new Joe Estevez. Oh, really? <laughs> the, yeah. the new Joe Estevez. <laughs> yeah. For those who don't know, Joe Estevez is is Martin Sheen's older brother. Yeah. 
who who's not a particularly great actor. He's no. not a bad actor. No. But but he, he never became a movie star. He just became kind of a B movie guy who yeah. did lots and lots of action movies where he'd, you know, grow a beard the, the and take a gun the and Frank Stallone of his of his Yeah, of there his... you go. The Frank the Frank Stallone of the Estevez. <laughs> yeah. I, I that this, this I just watched this, I was like, you know what? Twenty five years ago, this is a Joe Estevez movie. <laughs> <laughs> just is i mean i don't know i don't know any other way to put it but there it is yeah he, he fancies himself a james bond type but i think yeah well uh for that uh what else we got the uh the um oh uh, i was gonna start oh, I, I got one here uh so we got techno lust okay. by lynn hirschman leeson uh this is a tilda swinton movie from strand it is definitely from uh for, it's a little bit weird uh it's also got karen black and jeremy davies in it <clears throat> which tells you just how weird it is. If you're going to put Tilda Swinton, Karen Black, and Jeremy Davies in a movie, you're not going for naturalism. Ah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, this is this is a, a, another kind of a weird avant-garde thing uh, about a woman who has three um, kind of uh, self-replicating android versions of herself. So Tilda Swinton gets to play four parts. And uh, they're all—I shouldn't say androids. They're—they're—they're they're, they're clones, but it's—but they're not clones. You know what I mean? They're—they're—they—they're they're, they're their own thing, anyway. Um, actually, you know a better way to put this is: this is like Tilda Swinton doing a uh, a, a remake of Multiplicity without Michael Keaton's jokes. <laughs> oh, without, without the jokes, without the comedy. That would be there you go. That's a, that's a better way to put it. Um, anyway, it's. Uh, it's kind of weird and very uh, Blade Runnery, and it touches on a lot of those same uh, kind of Phil K. Dick concepts, and that's what makes it interesting. Is that it's really it's the ideas it deals with. There's not so much of a story to it as there as it is that it sort of wallows in a lot of very interesting speculative ideas. Mm. And Tilda Swinton is always great to look at. You know, she's just she does such interesting things as an actress, even when you think. In the hands of any other actor, that would just be stupid, and I would never buy it, and I would be sitting here laughing while I ate popcorn. And yet, Tilda Swinton does it, and you just kind of sit there and you get a chill up your spine, and you just think, "Wow, that was kind of amazing." <laughs> and it's, and it's a, you know, it's a testament to her as an actress. True. All the way, the all the way back to Orlando, all the way back yeah, to Orlando. That's for sure. Um, for sure. Uh, this is a, this is a neat little one. Um, the the burnt orange heresy. It's about it's about an art heist sort of situation. This guy's an art dealer. He gets uh, hired by. Uh, this person to steal this uh, uh, this work of art from this extremely um, this well known but extremely sort of J D Salinger esque enigmatic sort of painter person, um, and it's uh, and it's, it's about greed and, and and all kinds of wicked, wicked cool things. I, the thing I like about this movie most though is that Mick Jagger shows up in it. Uh, Mick Jagger used to make he's, Mick used to show up in a lot of movies. Mick starred in a couple of few movies over the course, yeah, well, quite a few. Uh, and, and, he's, and he's really he's kind of grown into a really interesting place too. Yeah, you know, uh, he, he's sort of quiet and interesting. So I got the the only time that I ever met Mick Jagger was for a terrible movie that he made back in the nineties called Free Jack or something like that. Oh yeah, I remember Free Jack, that terrible sort of uh, movie. Anyway, he came to the junket, which blew, which blew me away. I'm like, but he was, you know, that's when he was trying to be. A, Taken seriously as an actor, uh, so you know, uh, one of those kind of things. Uh, what else have we got here um, under the? Oh, how uh, to build we... a girl. Um, I, I, I see here, which is an interesting yeah. film. That's from the novel, the Caitlin Moran novel, right? Yeah, yeah, Be- yeah. Beanie Feldstein. Yeah, uh, sort of, sort of, sort of, sort of interesting film. Um, uh, yeah, you've got a teenage girl uh, living with her family. Uh, it's a it's set in the UK in England, in, in England. 
um, and uh, sort of grows up to become uh, this very popular sort of music journalist, uh, covering all of the music of the period, which shows up inside this movie. Uh, Patty Constantine, again, a great cast here. Patty Constantine uh, is in this movie. Uh, uh, Harper Perry's in this movie. Really, 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 really cool little cast. Neat little movie. Uh, Bea Feldstein's going to be a big deal. Biographical picture. I think so, too. Yeah, she's going to be a big deal. I mean, uh, she's gonna, she may wind up being uh, even bigger than her brother at some point. Uh, she's Jonah Hill's sister, for yeah. those who, who don't yeah. know. Uh, but yeah, I think I think Beanie Feldstein is going to be a real big deal. It's uh, give, give her give her you know five six years. I think uh, something's really going to pop. Um, and then uh, let's see. Uh, last of the new movies here I've got is uh, The Shadow of Violence, which is fine. Um, it's it's another one of those kind of gritty Irish uh, street thug punky you know, the tough, the mean streets of Ireland movies. Yeah. Uh, these, these come around every once in a while. They usually deal with, you know, crime and drug dealing and despair and alcoholism. And, you know, it, 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 they're not really great advertisements for tourism to Ireland, but uh, <laughs> they, 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 they pack a punch. Uh, and this one certainly does as well. Um, yeah. It's, uh, you know, the, the guy, they're always ex boxers too. You ever notice that? It's always like some guy used to be a boxer, can't make money as a boxer. So now I'm going to be a hitman or a, a, a bag man or whatever the case is. Anyway, uh, it's a movie is shadow of violence. And, uh, you know, if, if you just want to see Irish people curse at each other and, and be really brutal, it's a, it's, it's definitely your thing. Uh, Tim, I got a few other, uh, classic ones here. Uh, I'm going to talk about a few criterions. Okay. Okay. You know what's on Criterion? Oh, finally. Well, I mean, I never expected it would wind up on Criterion. Claudine. Claudine oh, wow. Is on Criterion. James Earl Jones, the exquisite Diana Carroll. How, how amazing is that? I never expected somebody would put Claudine on Criterion, but good for them. Yeah. What a what a wonderful, wonderful movie. This is uh, Diane Carroll is is just extraordinary. She was Oscar nominated for the part in 1974. Uh, and um, uh, I, I, it's funny. This was on some streaming platform. Gosh, it might have been Criterion. Uh, I want to say three or four months ago, but uh, it was the first time that I had seen it in a very, very long time. And it's amazing how it just captures that moment. It captures the 70s. Yeah. Like it really, really crystallizes the 70s, the grain of the film and everything else. Um, but yeah, it's it's basically uh, Diane Carroll playing the title part. Single mom, six kids living in Harlem and um having a relationship with this uh this amazing James Earl Jones yeah. character who plays a garbage man yeah i mean and it just it somehow winds up being like magical yeah just those two talents together it's magical it's it's incredible a lot of wicked people came out of that came out of that movie too yeah uh, audio commentary from 2003 with uh James Earl Jones and Diane Carroll and and uh, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs and George Tillman Jr even weighs in uh it's it's pretty great and i didn't i didn't know this either but dan pine screenwriter dan pine current screenwriter dan pine who was a, an instructor at ucla when i was there um his his um uh parents wrote this oh really yeah that's amazing I, I i know i had no idea i had no idea so uh i didn't realize he was a second generation until uh until i got this so anyway um, really, really beautiful movie directed by John Barry. It's a really beautiful film. Lots of extras on here. So, uh, including a new conversation with, uh, film programmer Ashley Clark and Robert Townsend. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right. Very cool. Robert Townsend. Uh, Tim, I'm sorry I, that I, you know, we're, we're not seeing each other cause I had to pass this off to you and let you explain it to me. <laughs> uh, 
because uh, we also have a new version, a new Criterion release on Blu-ray of Pierrot Le Fou, the, um, uh, the Godard film. This was his 10th <laughs> film. And I, 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 it's still sort of normal Godard, but Tim understands Godard to a degree that I don't. Well, I, 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 I just enjoy it a little bit more, <laughs> that's all. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's Anna Karina and Belmondo and they're both great. And Raul Coutard's photography is fantastic, but the, the jokes don't make sense to me in this. I swear. I, I just don't understand when, when Godard tries to be funny. And you speak French. And I speak French and I'm watching it and I'm like, I don't, man, that ain't funny. That ain't funny, bro. (laughs) I know you're trying to be funny and make some kind of satirical comment on capitalism and consumerism but it ain't funny i don't get it uh claire denise beau also out on uh, criterion from 1999 just claire denise is one of our great treasures this is an absolutely beautiful remake of uh, billy budd claire denise style and uh it, it's you know it all it's basically centers around a group of french foreign legion uh guys uh in in Djibouti it's really really beautifully shot it's incredibly intense oh man um, it's about jealousy of, and oh, all, kind, all kinds it's so powerful it's just so powerful and then the and then Francesco Rossi's uh Christ stopped at Eboli which is four hours long I want to remind people this is four hours long and very very political very very much a an Italian film of its moment which is in the late 70s when you had a you know late sixties to the late seventies, there was a lot of reflecting on the fascist period and a lot of anger and you know people whose parents and grandparents were either part of the government or suffered because of it. So you know a lot of that 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 residue from World War II and the fascist period seeped into the sixties and seventies. And uh, Rossi uh, decided to just vent for four hours with this thing, and uh, basically it's um, it takes place during Mussolini. Uh, in a particularly depressed part of rural Italy. And um, it's a powerful film, but man, it never ends. It just goes on and on and on. A lot of great extras here, including a new interview with uh, um, translator and author Michael Moore, different Michael Moore, I should point out, and then a documentary from 1978 uh, about this particular school of cinema, the Italian political cinema and anti-fascist cinema and all that stuff. So uh, a lot of great extras on here, really cool stuff. Uh, let's see, uh, 10 Little Indians, which has been done a, a billion times. Tim, did you ever see the 1974 version of oh, 10 absolutely. Little Indians? Oh, absolutely. It's among my favorite. Uh, I, I had never seen the 74 version of it. Uh, and it's pretty great. It's, it's really, really kind of cool. I, I didn't, I don't, I'm not even sure I even knew this existed. Oliver Reed mm-hmm. and Elkie Summer, Richard Attenborough, uh, Herbert Lom. This is, as you say, really cool kind of James Bondian cast. And it is a, it is a great take on it. Uh, I mean, Charles Aznavour oh, from yeah. France. And, you know, who even shows up in this Orson freaking Wells. Yeah. It's a fun movie. It's a fun movie. Uh, a few other quick ones here. Uh, Five Corners with Jodie Foster and Tim Robbins and John Turturro. This was uh, kind of, this is from MVD Visual and uh, Liberation Hall is the company. Tony Bill who has directed very few movies, directed this. Oh, yeah. It's re- it's a pretty good Tony Bill movie. I think he did this right after he did My Bodyguard, but it's it's not bad. It didn't really get a lot of attention. But middle, lady, middle lady, a little, little crimey, sort of, yeah. middle 80s, right? Something like that? 85, yeah. 88? Yeah. yeah, it's something like that. Yeah, it's like uh, mid-80s, maybe early 90s. But John it's Patrick really, Stanley, it's, though, you know. It, it's a sharp, yeah, that's right, John Patrick Stanley. It's a sharp little movie, sharp little movie. 
Uh, we also have a version of Wuthering Heights that I had never seen before with Richard Burton and Patty Duke. I don't know. Uh, utterly bizarre, produced by David Susskin for, for television. Uh, aired in 1958. Kind of weird. Mm. Uh, I don't think it really works, but uh, that's also from Liberation Hall. That's on DVD only. Um, and then the last two little uh, little off ones here. One is from the Film Detective Special Edition of The Sin of Nora Moran, which has been completely restored from the original negative. Uh, this is a 1933 film that is kind of lost uh, to a lot of people. And it has a documentary all about the making of it, in, in case you need a little bit of, uh, of, of, of backstory. Um, it's, uh, this is basically about a woman who is wrongly convicted of a crime. And uh, they use that injustice to dovetail into kind of a surreal, dreamlike, uh, avant-gardist movie, which in 1933 is, is quite a thing. And uh, it's 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 pro it's really worth checking out. I don't know if it's a, a great film, but it's certainly a significant film, and uh, um, it's it's uh, it's inspired a lot of people. So they restored this at the UCLA Film and Television Archives from the original negatives, and the, it is the Sin of Nora Moran. You, anybody looking for cool early avant-garde uh, experimental cinema would will certainly find a lot to appreciate in it. And then uh, Bruce Lee, not Lee, but Lee, mm -hmm. L-I, uh, stars in Dynamo, which is uh, one of those cheap Bruce Lee knockoffs that happened after the death of Bruce Lee when there were just a ton of Bruces and a ton of Lees, yeah. and none of them were actually going to fool anybody. Um, two different cuts of this thing in here. It's not very good, but it is, a, it is certainly a novel uh, peculiarity. And VCI has put that out through uh, MVD distributors as well. A few interesting extras on here, including an audio commentary uh, by a guy named Michael Worth, who's really, you know, he wrote the Bruce Exploitation Bible, which is all about these movies that exploited Bruce Lee's uh, death. And uh, he has a few interesting observations there as well. So, um, yeah, it's cool. Uh, cool, cool, cool. I was going to knock off Do a little bit of TV. Let's do it. Um, particularly some of the stuff that I, that I saw and, 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 and rather enjoyed. For instance, uh, Penny Dreadful, City of Angels. So Penny Dreadful, City of Angels uh, was the, I guess, third reincarnation of, of the Penny Dreadful series. Um, uh, this time set in the 30s here in Los Angeles. That's the first thing I loved about it. Um, both that and Perry Mason. Uh, the sort of reimagining of Perry Mason were set in Los Angeles in the 30s. And both of them got, got it really, really right in terms of uh, the sort of look and feel of the city and what was going on in the city at the time. At the center of this, it's it's the um, uh, extension of the 110 freeway up through Pasadena. A good chunk of the show is set in Pasadena. A good chunk of the show is set on my street in Pasadena, as a matter of fact, uh, round and about. And you see this, see this sort of community and the things that are going on in the background. Mostly what's interesting is that the sort of Latinx culture uh, and all of the things that were going on in the late 30s uh, with respect to uh, Mexican-American citizens, citizens of Mexican descent, uh, and, the, and, and, and the rest of the sort of city government, um, uh, gentrification still a thing that was going on, the erasure of certain Latin communities in order to build this freeway, and that would go on deep into the 60s. Oh, yeah. The, the, the place where Dodgers... Chavez, Chavez Ravine. Sits yeah. Right there, you know, um, yeah. that, was a, that was a Mexican community. So this went on for 35, 40 years. And, 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 and of course, the backdrop of it, in the backdrop drop of it all being the whole sort of penny dreadful Mexican-American Day of the Dead uh, lore. And... Nazis. <laughs> they managed to work Nazis yeah. uh, into this 
uh, version of Pentagrats, so which I thought was sort of interesting too, because you know the Nazi regime was sort of building up um, um, at the time. Anyway, I thought it was a pretty pretty well craft, crafted uh, Penny Dreadful. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Nathan Lane, great, fantastic work, and it was a chance to see a whole lot of really great young Mexican American actors in zoot suits and kind of doing the thing that they do. Anything interesting? Come with that, though. Yeah, yeah, a few things. There's an introduction to it, uh, and then a few uh, few featurettes, which are more significant than than the usual featurettes. So it's got some uh, some pretty good behind the scenes and background stuff. Yeah, it's it's not bad. And I also dug uh, Castle Rock, uh, which was a series uh, series that aired on Hulu, which actually sort of drew together. And my wife was a gigantic Stephen Stephen King. Uh, uh, fan, I bought her. Every, oh, I remember all those books. All those, books. all the books. Bought them all in hardback for us. Still got them right up. Yeah. And um, and so she sort of um, ag- he's what he's done is sort of aggregate a number of characters and stories. Um, pretty much all Stephen King uh, novels are set in or around Castle Rock. Um, uh, and uh, so he aggregates a bunch of those stories into into this very interesting uh, a series that stars Andre Holland. Andre Holland, we know as one of the central characters in Barry Jenkins' uh, film, Moonlight, uh, uh, Andre. Andre was the um, uh, adult version. Uh, uh, the guy that he, that he goes back and meets at the diner. Yeah. That's Andre. Um, uh, just a wonderful uh, actor, Lizzie Chaplin in the film, in the series, I should say. Um, so I thoroughly enjoyed, I thoroughly enjoyed Castle Rock, so fans of Stephen King will probably dig that. Uh, it, there was this incredibly disappointing series called Double Cross, that only uh, that only did one episode, one season anyway, one episode in one season. And look, the, it's a, it's a great idea for a series. It's this brother and sister, um, and, and uh, what they're doing is they they become aware of this group that's uh, that's kidnapping and selling women into into um, sex trafficking rings in their in their neighborhood. And they, they decide to stop that. She's a doctor. He's a cop. It's a really great idea for a series. But here's what you need. You need actors who can act and writers who can write. Uh, a, a good idea all by itself uh, will not do it. You have to actually be able to execute. And man, uh, these, these, these folks were not executing particularly well. <laughs> uh, but great idea for a series anyway. Um, Vikings, the sixth season. I cannot believe this has been on for six years. It's just, you know, it sort of blows me away a little bit, too. You know, you know, uh, and and the, it's it's weird for me too because I stopped watching it after the second season, mm-hmm. and then at some point somebody said to me, uh, like a, a relative of ours uh, in in, a, in another in another state said, uh, you know, they put our ancestor on the show. <laughs> I'm like, what? what you, on what what show? Like, didn't even tell me what series. I I, I you, know, you just assumed you were watching. Like, what ancestor? What show? What are you talking about? You said on Vikings. I was like, Viking? Yeah, Rollo. Rollo. Rollo's on Viking. Like, okay. <laughs> So, long story short, not that anybody gives a damn about my genealogy, but my I, – seriously. So, uh, the the first Duke of Normandy was a Viking named Rollo. He was a Norwegian who led a Danish fleet of Vikings. Um, like, he, you know, he, he, he became a renegade because his uh, some other Vikings burned the house and killed his dad, and he ran away and ran up falling in with the Danes. And then, you know, 20 years later, he's a chief, and he ride, sails up the Seine River, scares – King Charles of France into giving them the Duchy of Normandy. That's how Normandy became Normandy because the Normans or the Northmen were given that to not cause problems. Anyway, his like great grandson was William the Conqueror. And William the Conqueror's uncle was an archbishop who was a bit too pissy and got excommunicated. 
uh, for being too pissy about William the Conqueror, and he was banished to the island of Guernsey, where he said, screw it. And he got married, and he had like 30 kids. I'm descended from one of them. So that, anyway, Rollo, who was his like grandfather as well, uh, is a bit of a, a legendary Viking fixture, and suddenly they stuck him on the show in a way that is completely not related to history at all. They just said, hey, let's have Rollo on the show. So there it is. And I don't know why it's in its sixth season, but there it is. Vikings, it's still around. Uh, uh, yeah, you know Sherman loved that show too. Uh, uh, Vikings, Death on the Nile. This is the David Suchet version of Death on the Nile. Uh, David yeah. Suchet is, is is one of my favorite Hercules. Um, um, uh, um, uh, and, and 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 now and now, uh, you know, uh, uh, Kenneth. Uh, yeah, uh, is, is is that? And yeah, and that that one's coming up. So this is David Suchet. What year did that come out, man? This is uh, burr, burr, is burr, the, burr. it's not from the nineties, is it? Let's see, it's two thousand three. Two thousand three. Okay, okay. Two thousand three. Uh, just creeping up. Yeah. Absolutely love David Suchet's uh, um, 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 uh, performance in that particular film, but I still can't wait to see uh, the Kenneth Branagh film. And, and again, that's that's one that we could talk about. How does a, that film? That film. You know, I don't know what, what they're going to do. You know, I mean, uh, it, it's just you know. It's it's meant to be seen in theaters, but you know, yep. what are you going to do? Yep. And he's shooting he's shooting it in sixty five minutes. Exa- exactly. So you know, I mean, yeah. it'll, it'll, it'll just, so I, that doesn't make any difference for TV, but mm. yeah, there it is. Um, you know, you know what? I want to make a quick mention here of um, as long as we're on TV stuff, the best of share. Oh yes, which is a two volume set from Time Life. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna set this aside and try to get this into the uh, the gift guide as well when we get to holiday time comes around Black Friday the week of Black Friday we will be uh, and and Thanksgiving we will be doing our annual gift guide and it'll be a little big of a bigger of a deal this year. Uh, this is nine DVDs with everything that Cher has ever done on it. Well, not really, but pretty close <laughs> to. It's it's like ten episodes of her of her TV show. Uh, all of her TV specials from the 70s, Las Vegas concerts, a documentary called Dear Mom Love Share, um, t- interviews, uh, all kinds of clips from other shows. It's just, it's it's nine DVDs filled with Share. Now, th- that might sound like overkill to a lot of people, yeah. but a lot of people out there love Share. Yeah. I guarantee you, my, my wife and her sister being among them because they've seen her in concert. And... Um, you know, that's 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 a big deal for some people. So Time Life has loaded it up with share, and uh, you can get a little bit of Sunny in here, too. So Killing Eve, season three. Anything particular interesting coming with that? I watched season one of Killing Eve, thoroughly enjoyed it, you know, yeah. but, but sort of, you know, uh, let it go. Yeah, nothing really here. Just a just a few special features uh, on the on the the making of the film and and stuff like that. So nothing nothing no not a real big deal uh, or the making of the series mm. uh, the season. Not a big deal. Just just behind the scenes stuff, EPK type stuff. You're really watching this for Sandra O. Oh. Yeah, that's the reason you watch this for her for her acting. Um, Jody Jody Cummer. I don't I don't really know where she came from. Pun intended. Uh, but she's good too. But it's 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 a Sandra O oh show. That's she, the, that's what she, you she watch. She was running around. Uh, what that that Idris Elba series when it was uh, Luther. Uh, yeah, yeah. She, 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 she bumped around that a little bit. You know, did some interesting things. Riverdale season four. Riverdale is one of the few series on the CW uh, that I don't actually watch. But it always struck me as interesting. They they took the sort of characters from Archie, the Archie characters, and set and they set them in this sort of extremely dark, weird and drama. And you know, I yeah. grew up. Hey, you know, with the Archies, and I'm like, what? What is the angle on that? Uh, but I never, I never went and looked. But hey, we're at season four, so they must be doing right. something, right? Right? 
right? Um, with the Archie, could 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 we rip on Picard for a second? Season well, one? we will. But remember, you 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 hated it more than me, and I and I know that there are all kinds of problems uh, with yeah. Picard. Um, one of the things that I did not realize until the end of the series, and, and, and it was sort of off the cuff comment, and I just and I did the math in my head, but Picard, Jean Luc Picard, in that series. So this is season one of Picard. You know, um, he is meant to be 95 years old. It's, it, 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 and, and, and somehow over the, I know that he was supposed to be, that this was years later and, yeah. and whatnot, you know, and uh, I, I think they even, they, they even say it's something like 30 years later. But he's meant to be 95 in that series. And, and yeah. of course, um, 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 uh, uh, Patrick Stewart, who plays him, I don't know exactly how old he is, but, but he's probably approaching his middle 80s. Yeah, and, and he's and and the funny thing is he's younger than William Shatner, who is what is Shatner eighty eight? Eighty eight. And and Shatner looks like he's sixty. Yeah. And he spends all day on Twitter ad, agitating people. <laughs> that must keep him young. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a, it, but you know, look, go ahead and poke Picard. I I will not. So here's the thing. I mean, uh, the 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 my problem with Picard as a series is not that they. I I love the idea that they wanted to resurrect the character, and and uh, you know, he um, it, it gets into a lot of uh, Federation politics and and Romulan politics and. Uh, you know who's guilty and not guilty of the the slaughter of of, uh, of Romulans on Mars, where they were given refuge, and there's all that. There's there's all this crazy backstory to it, but it's the Romulan politics that drove me crazy mm. because it just uh, it, and, and there's a whole data thing involved too, and I, I don't want to give any of it away, but it just it just felt hokey at a certain point to me, especially all that Romulan melodrama. It's just oh come on, you know it, it, it just it didn't. I, it, it's not the Star Trek I fell in love with, where there's a certain realism to it. No, look, I, I, won't, I will not disagree with any of that. You have all of that sort of stuff going on, uh, and, uh, and 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 you know, and then we have our sort of sort of a, a swashbuckling action sequences in the show, yeah. uh, and because and because uh, Patrick Stewart um, is in fact you know close to eighty, and uh, Picard is supposed to be ninety five, they have to assign all of those duties. To much younger people. <laughs> yes. So basically, correct. what we're really doing, you know, and Commander Riker pops up, and uh, and and you know, and they don't explain why Brent Spiner as Data, who is an android, yeah. uh, looks fifty years old. Uh, now, I suppose that we could say that Data wanted to, but blah blah blah. But here's, yeah, but you know, there, there's all kinds of sort of construction problems to do to do with that stuff. And eventually, what you do is you, what you have is, uh, is is Patrick Stewart standing behind younger people as the, they they kick ass, <laughs> yeah, and, and he runs around and punches buttons. Um, and they and they bring back what's her name if six was nine, yeah, or whatever seven of nine, is, seven yeah. of nine, seven of nine. That's it. Yeah, yeah. who by the way still look fantastic. Uh, yeah, she does. She looks great. Nevertheless, nevertheless, you're not you're not wrong about the uh, about the Picard series. But what, what am I going to do? I'm going to end up watching the rest of it anyway. I just know I am. <laughs> um, Mom, which premiered back in 2013. With Allison Janney and Anna Ferris, uh, is it, it, still going strong. I think we have what do we have here? Season seven of Mom. Yeah, season seven. The complete seventh season of Mom, which is so weird to me that this show has been on that long. Yet another Chuck Lorre series. Chuck Lorre. Yeah. I you know I, I would have to go and look, but pretty soon now he's going to be one of those guys. Uh, like you know, like a spelling, uh, like a, oh, already he's already there. Yeah. He's he's. I mean, it's outrageous. It's not uh, eight, five, six, seven long running series 
um, uh, you know, most of them fairly silly. But you know, there there are these folks who come into the business, and they and they Marcy Kern, uh, 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 Carsey Werner. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's there's Chuck Lorre. Everything they touch is gold. Yeah. Okay, could could we talk about superheroes for a second? Nah. So I got two. Um. Both of them DC. Both of them basically kind of well. One is the Arrowverse, and the other one is kind of semi connected to the Arrowverse. But uh, my my daughter is on a superhero kick. Yeah. Like the mother of all superhero kicks. <laughs> it started. It started just realizing by watching some of the Marvel films on uh, on Disney Plus, and then now I, I. Long story short, I have had to print out one hundred pieces of paper with superheroes from Marvel and DC on them, all of whom she is memorizing, all of whom her their powers she is memorizing. And it's an obsession the likes of which I've never seen. It's just, it's crazy. So we're superhero nuts here right now. And she's creating her own superheroes. And uh, there it is. But Legends of Tomorrow, mm. uh, the complete fifth season, is the one that has all of the, the it's, it's part of the five-part crossover. Oh, yeah. With uh, with the 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 multiverse thing with you know Flash and Supergirl and all the rest, so all of those episodes are on this as they are on the other seasons. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to worry about collecting them all. But if you prefer Legends of Tomorrow generally as a show, which I don't, yeah. but others do, uh, that is out there, and there are some fun episodes to this. I just uh, the whole um, uh, 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 what was the uh, the the. Bridget was on the show. Quantum Leap. Quantum Leap. Thank you. It feels just like a splashier version of Quantum Leap with too big of a cast. <laughs> and, and, right? and look, I'm sitting here, I'm sitting here poking Legends of Tomorrow, yet I've watched every season of it. Yeah. The cast has completely changed in that series. Completely. Three completely. full times. And, and, and at the moment, uh, they're, they're, they're the only person still in that series that was in it at the beginning is, is um, uh, the guy that plays Ray. Uh, I know. Uh, um, uh, who, you know, who was, who was Brian, he was Brian. Was he Brian Singer's Superman? I think it was Brian Singer's Superman. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and he and he plays the Adam. And he plays the Adam in this in this yeah. series. And he's the only person yeah. <laughs> from that original. But, series still but he also gets to play Superman again. Yeah. In the in the crossover episode, which is, which is kind of wild. The way they do it, along with Tom Welling and everybody else who ever played Superman. Yep. Um, uh, now here's the one. Here's the one that I feel a little bit better about. And and I was not a. Uh, I didn't know that Star Girl was a thing. I'm but kinda, Star Girl, kind of digging it. Stargirl's a pretty fun show, right? Kind of digging it. I'm kind of digging it. So Stargirl, basically, she doesn't have powers, but she has the staff, yeah. which is basically the same staff as Starman, who, of course, does show up on the show. And and it's, it's it's this staff that lets you fly through space. It's kind of like the equivalent of the Green Lantern ring, except it's a big rod. Yeah. And you get to zap people with it, and you fly with it. Now, Stargirl did show up for a minute some seasons ago, I believe, on Legends of Tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But it was a different actress playing a different Stargirl with a less cool outfit. This is pretty, pretty, pretty cool. And a lot of other DC characters show up on this thing. And uh, it, it, I think it's really fun. It's kind I of a throwback to even the small town that they're in and all that kind of stuff. It sort of, it sort of you know, resets it all. It doesn't reset it all, but it makes it feel like it's all reset and uh, in, in the 1950s or something like that. It's not. And, it, and, it, and again, it's, it's from Berlanti. Um, it's it. I I don't know that it's necessarily part of the Arrowverse, but I'm sure that they will uh they will make it part of the Arrowverse in in some well, in you, some you way. Even though Arrow doesn't you, exist you, anymore. You got you got yeah exactly. Uh, but you got you got Solomon Grundy, 
uh, yeah. who's out of uh, what's it, Batman, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. Kind of, so some of these characters are crossover characters, you know, more yeah. obscure <laughs> characters, but, yeah, you know, there they are. Yeah, no, there's there's a lot of a lot of fun stuff on it, a lot of fun stuff on it. So good on them. They're they're getting the DC pantheon out there in a, in a really big way. I see you got um, Succession season two. Yeah. Um. Uh. And you know, look. Um. Uh. Succession. Every, every pretty much everybody on the planet uh, likes this more than me. I, I thoroughly enjoy some of the performances in Succession. Brian Cox, Kieran Culkin, um, um, uh, a number of wonderful, you know, Cherry, um, uh, Cherry Johnson, a number of wonderful, wonderful actors uh in in this series but the series itself basically a bunch of absolutely terrible dastardly people in this <laughs> uh all vying for control of this empire and uh and, and, the, and the you know the father uh, who doesn't want to give it up but knows he's gonna eventually have to give it up and and how the children are going after each other and him and and uh, and and I and, and effectively, what is it? It's Dallas. It's these series that you and I, uh, you know, it's Dallas. It's Diamond. Sure it is. It's Falcon Crest. It's uh, Flamingo Road. Um, and uh, so you know, it's not like it's not like uh, you know we didn't have these, uh, but somehow I don't know. They they bug me now. Um, uh, the, the way we sort of because we end up sort of like we end up sort of like uh, loving these terrible people. Uh, but I keep wanting there to be someone in one of these series who isn't disgusting. Bobby Ewing was a good guy, if you remember, yep. you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Victoria Principal, they were the good guys. They were the good couple in that show. And then all of the heinous things went on around them. In these series, <laughs> there are no good guys. <laughs> Everyone is just and terrible, that's, and that's the and that's what we get with things like Ozark. Ozark, too. Exactly. that's kind of we're in that we're in that moment. Yeah, uh, sorry, yeah, yeah. So yeah, but therein lies the difference. Anyway, uh, uh, succession, succession, a season two. Uh, you know, we got a few things from uh, from uh, Mill Creek. I want to make quick mention of to Royal Pains, mm. uh, the complete series uh, from Mill Creek on DVD, not Blu-ray. This is one of those doctor shows. Uh, you know, he's a doctor in, in the Hamptons. This is a little bit like Northern Exposure, except with a, a better place. Yeah. <laughs> no offense to Alaska, <laughs> but it's like, you know, he got a, he got a better gig. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's fine, you know. Uh, it, it's, it's basically about the characters more than the environment, to be honest. Uh, you know, it's, uh, Magnum P.I. could take place in the Bahamas for all anybody cares. But, uh, you know, the characters are what drive it. And uh, my thing, I love him. Yeah. Uh, he's one of those guys where you, you you don't if you didn't think about it, but he has been around for a thousand years. Yeah, I know. Uh, um, particularly as an actor, I mean, you know, late eighties. He was in he was in Carolina in the city, and just all of these great sitcoms and 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 a few big movies. He was he was the guy in Practical Magic, and he popped up in all the Sex in the Cities back in the day, and you know, and, and has had the lead. In uh, and, and, and one or two uh, television series, but he's just not the kind of guy whose name sticks in your head. But when you see his face and that curly hair, you're like, that guy from Alec McNeil, that guy from, yep. you know, what women want, all that kind of stuff. Around forever, love him. And then uh, also from the uh, the Ultraman world on uh, from Mill Creek, we have Ultra Q, the complete series, which is a, um, a 12 episode show, kind of spun off from the Ultraman world about monster hunters. Uh, it's sort of like a Japanese uh, kaiju ultramany version of Night Stalker. Mm. I don't know how any other way to put it. Uh, it's 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 okay. It's a little bit cheesy. It's a little bit hokey, but that's kind of the charm of it. Uh, so I mean, you know, if, if you're if you're into the uh, the whole Ultraman thing, and then we also have um, Ultraman Ginga, the uh, 
two different series and a movie and a special all on one big mega freaking blu-ray set it's <laughs> ultraman ginga the series ultraman ginga s the series ultraman ginga s the movie and then ultra fight victory you know what plots don't matter it's a whole lot of ultraman doing a whole lot of fighting and honestly if you try to make too much out of the stories you're gonna get a headache i i can't keep track of all the different ultramen at this point or why they're different or where they come from or what they're doing to save what galaxy none of it makes sense to me as long as they're cool looking outfits and they're shooting cool rays and stuff is blowing up I'm on board. Yeah, did you, have, there you go. did you watch? Did you watch the Frankie Drake Mysteries? I I, I love that show. Uh, That's a good show. That's a good show. show. Uh, a Canadian show, and you know, and it's yeah. set in Toronto. The Canadians make a lot of these. They're really, really, really good. Murdoch Mysteries was, is another. Um, uh, but this one, this one's set in the 20s in Toronto, and I love that it's set in Toronto. You know, yeah, and uh, and 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 Canadian things and Canadian issues, Canadian politics, and it's just and it's just a, a she's a detective, she's a subtle Sherlock, and she's and she has this um, a partner who's this young black woman, which is actually makes sense in the context of a Canadian show set in the twenties because it was a much more egalitarian society there, and uh, and the telephone is like a brand new thing, and 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 it's all very Canada centric. Yet in the background, things that are going on in America. Are, are always sort of floating. They're always mentioning, True. you know, the Americans. <laughs> you know, yeah. they say something. All right. And it, it's just it's just sort of so so neat the way they do that, the way they do that, and in a way that we don't do it in the sort of equivalent uh, programs. Anyway, uh, uh, the Frankie Drake mystery is a lot of fun. Thoroughly enjoy that. Uh, this would be, what, season three? Season three, yeah. And then we've also got Burt Sugarman's The Soul of Midnight Special. That's yeah. five DVDs set. If you don't know what the Midnight Special was, boy, you 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 you, you yeah. were deprived. Um, Midnight Special was just the greatest thing in the 1970s. I mean, we we grew up on it, and uh, the people that that would perform there, it was just it was something to watch. You know, late at night. I I remember it would, it would come on what Friday night, Friday, Friday night or Saturday. It was Friday night. Friday night. Yeah. I'd sit there and it was just the greatest thing. It was the greatest way to wrap out a week, you know, after school or whatever. It was just, it was just great music, great live music. Uh, it just, it was, it was a, it was a really, really fun way to wrap out the week. And the, the this is a the way they, that he would put together those shows because I mean, they, you know, rock and soul and R and B. This is, this, it was great. This is the soul love. So, you know, you, you get yeah. Brown, you get so this, these are the soul performances yeah. from it. And uh, you get James Brown, obviously, yeah. and Gladys Knight and the Pips, obviously. But also Curtis Mayfield oh, yeah. and Sly and the Family Stone Al and Al Green, Barry White, Barry White. You know, I mean, it's just it's just it's a it's a joy to see some of these people perform oh, because you hear that every band that I was in from the time that I was eight years old until yeah. I was 17 was basically a band pretending to be the Ohio players. Oh. <laughs> you know, with these brothers out of Sugarfoot and all those guys, Sly and the Family yeah. Stone, the Spinners. It's fantastic stuff, man. It's really good. And and the thing is, you know, we all hear this music on a regular basis on the radio or on your mix or whatever. But a lot of these these acts were first and foremost performers, mm. not just great musicians, not just great composers and songwriters, but performers. Mm. You don't get them unless you get them on stage. And I got to say that about Barry White, yeah. too. You know, I met Barry White once when he came through when I worked at Air France as a passenger service agent, you know, a million years ago. And he came through on his way to the Nice Jazz Festival with, uh, you know, his entire crew and band and like 800 pieces of luggage and instruments. 
and um that was a big man <laughs> you know yeah. barry, i mean not not just not not like fat but like barry white yeah. was like oh, six, yeah. six five yeah he was like six five he was an enormous i mean he was like he dominated the room and and the the thing that was just so amazing about barry white is as soon as that voice hits you and that smile hits you 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 were in i i was gay for however long he was in the room <laughs> oh barry it was it was it was amazing. It's just that he, but he, he was so kind to everyone and so gregarious and just the warmest man. And it's just, you know, you get that when you see him perform and you don't necessarily get it just listening. Yeah. You got to see him. You got to see you him. Gotta, probably, I went to so many there as, as you know, and it's so bizarre for me for a moment. And you, you'll remember this. I was, I, I, I was on this film review show, this PBS based film review show. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the producer of that show shot it out of his home. His home happened to be the last home that Barry White lived in. No kidding. And he, he literally bought that house from Barry White back in the 90s. Uh, uh, Mike Freeman is, is, is the producer's name. And I, so, so for about uh, you know, a season of this, of this PS show that I was on five or six times, I would go to Barry White's house <laughs> and hang out in Barry White's living room. Wow. And shoot this show, and was, he, and, he, and even then, this is this is only a few years ago. He was still getting mail, mail addressed to Barry White. No, and, I, and he's like, hey, why, why, why would I put a stop to that? That's fantastic. That's just the nuttiest thing in the world. Uh, California, you gotta love this town. Rick and Morty, season. Yeah. Four. Um, I, you know, look, I watched I watched a season or two of Rick and Morty. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Kind of funny. It got a little mean to me after a while. <laughs> It's kind of it's kind of mean, yeah. And I was like, you know what? This is this is this 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 cartoon has an attitude. But lots of people love Nick, uh, Rick and Morty season four, um, and, which I imagine Adult Swim, Adult Swim, out of Adult Swim. Where I imagine that comes with some fairly fun. Nope, cra- nope, no, no extras, <laughs> nothing, nothing at all on it, nothing at all on it. And frankly, I, um, I consider that but, rude. Yeah, it is kind of rude. But uh, uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, what also has nothing on it. There's there's a segue. Is uh, the complete first season of Prodigal Son, which I uh, I took time out to to watch because I remember that it, it looked interesting from all the promos and whatnot. So got it on DV, on Blu-ray and uh, checked it out. And I'll I'll tell you, um, I think there's a really interesting future to this show. Really? I want to see really where it goes, but it's about a, a criminal psychologist uh, who is the son of a serial killer. Oh, and reverse, right, kind of a Dextery kind of thing. It's really that, and that's the that's the whole thrust of it is how being the son of a serial killer has turned him into this great criminal psychologist. But of course, there's a lot of baggies that goes with it as well. And uh, Lou Diamond Phillips uh, plays the, uh, the detective that he works with, and there's a lot of other really interesting supporting characters here. But um, it is a it, it, from a psychological angle, it's a very well written show, and uh, it opens up a lot of really interesting questions that I think future seasons should be able to answer very, very compellingly. The writers have set themselves up with a wonderful canvas, and uh, I think there's a lot to do with this show. Uh, it may, it, it's, it, again, it's kind of still, um, it's still in its formula, 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 oh, form, <laughs> man, I cannot talk about it. It's formative stages. Uh. 
but first season of Prodigal Son is very, very promising. Let's uh, let's do like two more, and then we'll we'll wrap it into the Lee Renee uh, interview. Okay, uh, the, the the Good Fight, um, which I know a lot of people really, really love. I I, I didn't follow that one out of the Good Wife. I, sh- I probably should have followed it out of the Good Wife. You know, I did not realize I'm Michelle King, Robert King, creators of. Of, of 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 that show, Phil Alden Robinson is one of the creators of the Good Fight. Yeah, I did not yeah. know that. I don't know why I didn't know that, but it just uh, it just never. Anyway, Christine Baranski, uh, Delroy Lindo. Uh, I, I'm told it's a very very good sharp series, particularly apropos, you know, uh, post um, uh, you know, the sort of Me Too, Too movement and did a, a yeah. lot of the commentary. We're looking at season five. Uh, what are we looking at? Season four. Season, season four. four. This is season four of yeah. Fight. Yeah, season four. It's a it's a it's a great cast. I mean, you know, Delroy Lindo and Christine Baranski. That's powerhouse right there. Mm. That's uh, that's some powerhouse stuff. So good on them. Uh, and then let's do uh, Balthazar season two, which uh, comes from ITV Studios, more famously known more recently for uh, Downton Abbey, but they do a lot of other stuff at, uh, with ITV. And uh, Balthazar now in its second season is a um, is basically a a a variation on Quincy, mm. uh, or even what was the other uh, medical examiner show that we had uh, momentarily for, for oh, bones, there in the '90s? Bones, bones. Yeah, there there been there been a few of them. Um, anyway, the um, yeah, I mean, you can you always can do a lot with these things. They they there's always something a little bit gruesome and morbid about the whole subject of being a medical examiner, even though if you talk to them, they're it's a really clinical job and it's not very exciting and you know it's very very it's very scientific. It's just it, it's not a lot of intrigue. But television has to make everything intriguing. So um, in this case, you know they uh, they they really do what. Um, uh what what you could only do on a european show and this the backdrop of the show is of course the uh is is parisian um it's a french series made by produced by itv so because it is french because it's set in paris you you wind up having a lot of um sort of the the residue of the middle ages always kind of creeps in right yeah. because they're there who knows what's buried around paris uh, who knows what's going to be lying around from, you know, hundreds bones. and hundreds of years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, uh, you know, you mix a little bit of the, the, the ugliness of the middle ages with the, uh, the ugliness of the modern ages and you find where they intersect and, um, you wind up with a pretty sharp show. Um, now in its second season, Balthazar, and of course it's, it's, uh, you know, he has to be very, very sexy. Uh, and he is, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, I want to see where it goes further. How about, uh, what was the other see. one you were together? There was Haro, Harrow, uh, that, which was the British one, uh, you know, yeah. with that guy. Uh, and, uh, and you mentioned Quincy, um, uh, and there, and there's the examiner. Was it, was it called the examiner or I can't remember with, with, I, I'm trying to remember who the actress was. that was on it. It feels like, like a, that's like, why I thought it's, been, it's been a while. Bones, but, but yeah, that's yeah. What you were talking about, you were talking about something else. I can't, I, I'm talking about something else. Yeah. I'm talking about something else. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, the, oh gosh, we'll have to look for it. Gods at digigods.com gods at cinegods.com email us and check us out at the Facebook page. And now we're going to uh, go into our interview with uh, Lee Renee, author of Mitzi of the Ritz. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was terrific, beautifully, terrific, beautifully written novel, really well researched. And uh, we will dovetail right into that right now. Our interview with Lee Renee.
So we are uh, we're trying to expand more and more during the uh, the pandemic period to to cover things and and cover people that we otherwise uh, might not necessarily get to. And we have got a tremendous uh, Hollywood novel and novelist to talk about today. The book is Mitzi of the Ritz, written by Lee Renee, who joins us right now. Um, this is not a lot of people go out and write novels about old Hollywood and Lee Renee deserves all the credit in the world. This is a beautifully researched, very, very compelling novel, um, that takes place right around the, the transition period of silent films and sound. And it's just a wonderful backdrop for these incredibly colorful characters. Uh, Tim, thanks for, for being with us here and a big welcome to Lee Renee. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate that. Well, it's a perfectly so, fantastic book. I really, really love it. I love your lead character, your, your, your young heroine. Uh, when the book begins, she's in New York. Uh, she's a member of this sort of uh, uh, Jewish family, and uh, someone, someone has just passed. But she's looking to get the hell out of town. Tell us where you came up with this wonderful story that puts this heroine right smack dab in Hollywood. Well, it was interesting because I actually met Mitzi. She's passed away. But uh, she had, uh, at the age of 14, had gone to a very prestigious uh, college in New York. She was head of her class. Um, and then later on, she wanted to be a singer, but her father uh, didn't want her to. But later on, because of the uh, depression, she started singing on the radio. A lot of uh, people we wouldn't think uh, of had to started their careers in the during the depression because they needed jobs and they started show business careers but she told me all these stories and then i just incorporated them into the book and it was a lot of fun her name was ethel boot she was extremely progressive in her politics very jewish and she told me all kind of stories of uh, growing up in new york being a child prodigy and then also a singer so that was an, that so was interesting how much how much uh of this of the story is is kind of percentage wise fact and fiction or is it is it just kind of um too too hard to sort of separate at this point because it's you, you do such a wonderful job nobody would ever imagine that there's that there's even uh even a bit of fiction in this and yet you you really kind of bring it all together in a in a very fluid and elegant way well i i don't know how you can you know what the percentage is but I did use a lot of the, uh, my accumulated research because I had the privilege of being on every single major movie lot. I even went to the Columbia lot before it was um, torn down. So I saw all of them. I also knew old movie people. Uh, as a child, I grew, uh, grew up around a woman who had played maid roles during, in Hollywood. And she had gone blind because of clay light, which um, afflicted a lot of people. You know, the clay lighting that they use, mm -hmm. sometimes it would blind people. And there was nothing to, there was nothing to protect her. But she told us stories when I was a little girl of working in all these movies. Um, and um, just my interest in movies of the early 30s, because it was an interesting time in uh, Hollywood because the inception of sound hit the same year as the Great Depression. Mm. And thousands of theaters around the country closed because they didn't have the money to wire for sound. 
So people, only the big studios that own their own theaters were able to continue. And um, so I wanted to talk about that. That was a, that it was a business. It really was a business and I wanted to bring that out and just talk about what it must've been like in, uh, during the depression to go to these big theaters downtown, which I've seen all of them because when I grew up in Los Angeles, they were all working theaters. All up and down Broadway. All of them. The, the facades of which are still there. Um, yeah. If, yeah. if you live in Los Angeles, very often now they're, they're, they're anything from uh, a, a flea, flea markets to, uh, to jewelry shops. But yeah. those facades are all there. One, one or two, the Orpheum, Orpheum, I think, has been brought back. You guys are, you guys are both um, um, Los Angeles Hollywood natives. Uh, I'm from the middle of the country, St. Louis. And, and in your book, um, you, you do this, 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 this section that I particularly adore when Mitzi and her sister travel from New York to Los Angeles on a train. Um, and it's just a, it's just a it's just a beautiful train ride um, uh, rendered in some lovely prose. Talk about that train trip that you put them on uh, across the country. These two these two young women. Well, I did a lot of research with that. You couldn't go directly across the country um, <clears throat> by train in the in the twenties uh, and thirties. You had to switch in Chicago, and they had just built this big. Um, train depot in Chicago and they get on the train and I do talk about what it was like for them um, meeting this um, young Pullman porter who becomes a big part of the story and um, all of these uh, personalities, tell, uh, movie personalities, because remember there wasn't flight. This is the way you traveled, you traveled by train. And if you were a person of color, very often, and you had money, enough money, you rented your own uh, little car because you couldn't, you weren't allowed to mingle with the rest of the people. And I had to bring that up too. So, and I just wanted to show what it was like, uh, travel by train. It was a, must've been fabulous if you had enough money. And so it was a, it was a lot of fun writing that, that because I had to get all these um, stories from Pullman Porters. And see, that's one of the things I really like about the book is that it's not a rose-colored glasses view of the past. It sort of looks at it through a prism that says, we, we glamorize all of this stuff about old Hollywood, but it had its dark edges too. And it had, it had this, this really kind of unsavory mix of, of, of sour and sweet and, and good and bad. And, uh, you know, unless you really delve into like a lot of the old Hollywood scandals and, and murders and the secret lives of a lot of these people. You, you don't sort of necessarily get a sense of that. Talk for a bit about how extensively you, you went to research these characters. And are any of these characters, are any of the fictional characters based on anyone else in particular? Are there any famous people that are kind of hiding in the shadows? Yeah, well, there is a black character, Buster Sweet, who is based on an actor named Willie Best. Oh, Willie. Yeah. Willie Best was a huge uh, character actor in the 30s and 40s. And then he um, unfortunately uh, was caught in a drug bust and it destroyed his movie career. But he was an actor who was kind of the, um, well, he, he wasn't really step and fetch it, but like one step above. I combined him with another actual character 
Sunshine Sammy Morrison, who had started off as a child actor. He'd worked for Hal Roach, and he worked with Snub Pollard, and he did all these silent films. Uh, as a teenager, he did a little work, and then after World War II, he went into doing something else because um, he uh, wasn't interested in acting. But he was actually considered the first movie star, black movie star, because as a child, everybody liked him. They loved Sunshine uh, Sammy. And uh, he had a, a big career. He worked with Harold Lloyd. So I combined these two characters, uh, someone who was a child performer and then became uh, a real actor, you know, an adult actor and was able to transition in the movie uh, in the movie system. I have a photographer, a young photographer, Rose, who I modeled on Ruth Harriet Louise, who was the head photographer at MGM, the head portrait photographer at the age of 22. And she was finally fired and they replaced her with George Harrell. And she was still in her 20s when that happened, but uh, wow. now considered his equal. These are people you don't know about, but People who know who know uh, movies know about her. Um, she was uh, Green Greenberg. Her was her actual name. She was Jewish. Green. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Goldstein. Her brother was Mark Sandridge, who did all the RKO MG all the RKO. No there. Mark Sandridge was really Mark Goldstein. And he was no Harry Louise's brother. And um, so it was interesting reading about her. Um, by the way, just throwing this out, Ruth Harriet Louise was the first woman to do a glamour photograph of a black um, artist. Um, so she was just um, ahead of her time. But wow. she found herself uh, out of a job in the late 20s. I mean, the late 30s. So it was just too bad. But she, I wanted to use those characters. I also have a character model after Ida Kuverman, who was um, a, um, she worked at MGM. She was the right hand person to uh, Louis B. Mayer. And I used her as a model for another, for one of the characters. So, and then, then the other characters, David Stein, who's the romantic interest in it. I used, um, Irving Thalberg, although Irving Thalberg was um, different, different character, but I had a lot of fun, you know, uh, writing David Stein because I wanted to show a strong, handsome, young Jewish man who is also a businessman and who realized that in order to really be successful in Hollywood as a businessman, um, if you worked at a studio, the studio had to own theaters. So I created a man who came from a family of theater owners who, who did a deal with a small studio and then made that studio a bigger studio. That's great. It's, so, yeah. it's, it's all so, so interesting. Um, I have so many questions about so many things. There's a, there's a lot of music uh, in, in, in the novel. It's lyrically written, but, you're, but there's a whole lot of music in the background. We, we, um, um, uh, the wonderful clubs. Uh, and jazz. Talk a bit about oh, yeah. how, how music and the music performers informed uh, the time and what it is uh, that's happening in your narrative. Well, and the clubs too. Oh, those yeah. clubs! Some of which, yeah. so many of which are gone. 
Yeah, they're all gone. But um, the issue was there was a town called Sherman and it became, was unincorporated so they didn't use the LAPD. It became West Hollywood and it was loaded with casinos and um, illegal gambling and nightclubs. And because of the fact it was unincorporated and didn't use the LAPD, all kind, you know, they could do this stuff with impunity. They could do whatever they want. So I, I put most of the action in West Hollywood, which had been Sherman. And we forget West Hollywood was loaded at that time with small movie studios. They were all over West Hollywood. So many of them have, all of them have gone under except, um, you know, um, well, the rem the remnants of uh, of uh, of Warner Brothers that Formosa lot Formosa lot uh, yes. over there is still there. Yeah, uh, where, the, where the Formosa Cafe and whatnot. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I just used what I knew, like the Ch Chateau Marmont was originally started uh, as an apartment, and no one could afford to live there, so they made it into a hotel in 1931. So I used that character that as one of the characters in West Hollywood. Um, it must have been very beautiful from what I've read. West Hollywood was very beautiful, very quiet, and um, except at night, then it, you know, people went bananas. But um, it, it was very interesting to, to do that research. And, and, and the other thing that I wanted to ask you, I know that your character, the, 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 the person that your lead character is based on uh, was, is a woman of Jewish descent, and thus Mitzi is, is Jewish. But of course, um, uh, the Jewish people were, were prominent in, in, in positions of power all over Hollywood, yet there was still this thing of where sometimes uh, they tried to pass. They tried to hide. Oh yeah, they, they were Jewish. Saying, Talk a little yeah. bit about that weird sort of dichotomy. The bosses are Jews, but the actors are pretending not to be. Yeah, well, I mean, the fact that uh, Ruth Harriet Louise and Mark Sandridge had to give up their actual names were uh, part of it. Um, they, I used a number of, of uh, Jewish performers who kept Jewish in their private lives, but we didn't really know them as Jews. Probably the most famous one was Sylvia Sidney, who was a young actress at that time, very beautiful. They didn't talk about her uh, Jewish roots. Um, I think she changed her name. And there were a number of people who had Jewish names, like Ricardo Cortez, who was a big star at that time. Mm. His name was... Uh, uh, they called him Ricardo Cortez, but his name was something uh, Jacob Muntz or something like that. I can't remember. <laughs> you know, it just it just was a reality. There was a great deal of um, anti-Semitism, and Jewish um, Jewish the big owners of the studios, with one exception, were all Jewish. Um, Fox Daryl Z Zanuck was not Jewish. He was the only one at that time. And they were aware of the uh, a lot of anti-Jewish sentiment in the United States. Many of them be, uh, converted, not all of them, but some converted. They lived relatively um, secular lives. And um, so that was an interesting character. Interesting to look at, I'm sorry, interesting character. Interesting to look at. Um, I used 
Harry Cohn as one of the characters. And I also used, I met a lady who died. Her name was Edith Fellows. She was in the original Pennies from Heaven. She mm, was a child. Yeah. She, she was just a gracious lady. And she told me all kinds of stories about working in Columbia, what it was like for a child performer there. Um, it was just fascinating that, you know, the minute you were, uh, you reached puberty, you were, you know, didn't have a job. She had lovely things to say about Harry Cohn, who's normally considered the wow. bitch of all time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, you, don't, you don't hear good stories about Harry Cohn no, too no. often. No, but she just adored him. There were a few people who really adored him. Uh, Maureen O'Hara liked him and a few other uh, actresses really liked him. But she said he protected her against, um, from her grandmother who took all her money. And um, we forget, even though there was a Coogan law that still didn't um, protect all of their assets. So um, Harry Cohn took her mother aside and said, I could easily make sure that she doesn't work at all. And I can't do anything now because you are her mother. But the minute she turns 18, the gravy train stops and I'll, I'll work with her. You will not be allowed on this love. And she said he he saved her life, mm. you know. So wow. that was her belief, yeah. And she also said that, which has been written about, he used to um, walk around the studio every day because it was a fairly small studio and he could do it. But she said a lot of people liked him. He would visit, he knew everybody's name. So she gave a completely different uh, portrait of Harry Cohn. And so that's why I was able to use a character based on that in my in my book. Yeah. So. What, what based on your research? What is the greatest um, the greatest myth or misperception about old Hollywood that we have when we look back through our our nostalgia? I think that people talk about the sordid part. They don't realize that those performers worked twenty four seven. There was no Screen Actors Guild. Screen Actors Guild started in 1933 because the studios were working them so hard. They mm. would work forever, forever. When uh, Boris Karloff made Frankenstein, one day he worked for 25 hours straight, a day and one hour straight. And I, uh, if you were an actress and they wanted you to dye your hair blonde, you had to do your hair blonde. You had absolutely no choice in the roles. There was nobody to stand up for you. And it didn't mean that the people who owned the studios were bad. This is the way they, it was their studio and that's the way they wanted it. And so I would say there was, um, a, there were uprisings in the studio system. People really, if you were with a big studio, they really loved it but they also were aware the studio could get rid of you at any time, which is another reality. Mm. If you didn't behave, the studio, you know, was toot, toot, tootsie, goodbye, quite literally. And wow. uh, so I, you know, wanted to put that in, in there. And just the reality of what it was like, specifically during the depression, when people were starving to death, not starving to death, but starving, and it was the only thing that they had. There was no television. 
There were no computers. There were no computer gaming. Going to the movies. It was the either the movies or the radio, and that was it. And so that's one of the reasons why these movies theaters were so sumptuous and so beautiful, because it was a true experience. And I think, go ahead, Tim. These sometimes we forget uh, when we look back at these old movies, particularly ones that had these young starlets in them, just how young they were. Yes. Uh, some of them had the stage mothers or whatnots, but a lot of them, even the ones who came out on their own uh, in, in the midst of the depression, nothing, teenagers, girls, really. They were girls, not women at all, girls. Talk I'm a little bit thrilled. about all of these girls coming I'm, to Hollywood and, and yeah. sometimes becoming prey to, you know. Go. Well, Ida Lupino was called the baby vamp. She was uh, doing... Uh, playing uh, adult roles from the age of 14. Loretta Young did her first adult role at the age of 14 um, in, in an asylum, in an MGM silent, opposite Lon Chaney, who was the big star of that period. There were a lot of reasons for uh, early on using younger girls because they looked good under that harsh light, because mm. that light would age the, the average woman in no time. And they had uh, horrible makeup at that time, that uh, panchromatic uh, makeup. And then later on, Max Factor was able to work with the studios and change it. So, and Max Factor, of course, was Jewish too. And he had this uh, huge, huge, huge impact on the way people looked. But there are a lot of stars and a lot of women in that period. Um, the tap dancing actress, I can't remember her name, um, who worked in the 40s in a lot of musicals. Suddenly her name escapes Ginger? Me. Ginger Rogers? No. Uh, she was brunette. Um, oh, gosh. Golly gee, I can't remember her. She was 13 and she was doing, um, she was doing leading lady parts. Mm. Um, so I can't remember. I'm sure uh, it's a... Um, I'll think of her later on, but so many actresses were really, really, really young, and they were doing these parts. If John, Jean Harlow was a teenager when she started acting in Hollywood, mm. and she allowed them to do whatever they wanted uh, to her hair because she wanted to work. She wasn't poor, but she wanted to work, and she understood what it was going, what was going through. You think of uh, uh, some of those big stars who uh, trans did the transition from um, silent to the mm. sound era. Um, they were also very young. A lot of them were extremely young. So we, we just forget. These were young women, very often uh, more powerful men took advantage of them, but it was during the depression and they wanted to work. And it was, um, it was essential for them to work. So, you know, we have to, I, I tip my hat to them because I realized what it was like, what it must have been like. So I, I, when, when people read your book, and I, and I encourage anybody who has any kind of love for the history of the movies to, to definitely pick it up. Uh, you can grab it at Amazon, either Kindle or, or uh, in, in uh, physical, actual 
will not wear out the battery book form. I know that's <laughs> that's a, a anomaly to people now, but it's kind of nice to know that your book's not going to run out of, out of battery when you're reading it. Mm-hmm. And it's such a page turner. But it, it, it really is. It's, it's so much of a, a Hollywood history as well as a great story. Um, what what do you think, you know, you, you raise a great point that back then it was the only game in town. There were no video games. There was no television. There was no anything other than, than radio at a certain point. Movies, that was it. That was, you know, it was affordable. And here we are during this pandemic, and I think people are dying to go to the movies again when the theaters open up. And I think people are going to want movies to be different than they were before. They're going to want them to be bigger and more glamorous. I think that hunger might be there again. What lessons do you think today's Hollywood can take from the Hollywood of old? The fact that the Hollywood of old actually looked at what was going on around the country, which is something I don't think uh, that people do today. They looked at the trends and they were able to follow them. They were able to follow them. One of the things I thought was interesting was when um, the transit, when sound became the big deal and every studio slowly but surely transitioned, there were two things that were going on. MGM and other major studios assumed that silent films would last and that they would only use talkies in musicals. And then they were found then they realized everybody wanted talking pictures. They made um, musicals and musical pictures at first were not big. They were uh, failing at the box office. And then later on, you know, brilliant um, men, brilliant choreographers and brilliant directors changed that and everybody would wanted movie musicals. But it was a slow process. But the people who own theaters actually listened to what the public wanted and they realized this is what they want and that's what we're going to give them. It, 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 there was, there was, it took them a while to sort of get their minds wrapped around it. There was all yeah. that, as it always does every time the technology changes. Yeah. Uh, but there, 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 was, there, was, there, was, there was a while when, 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 when the studios would make, would make silent movies out of, movies with sound <laughs> they yeah. would they would take the sound off <laughs> and well, they would make two versions and yeah they would, yeah they would make a, a a version sync for sound and then another version silent that could be shown in in silent uh theaters that couldn't afford to trans transition yeah and it was uh not only it was uh, the right speed so it wasn't all jerky or anything. Yeah. My mother saw the original Dracula as a silent movie. She n- didn't see the sound movie because that's what they, um, that's what her theater presented. So they continued making silent movies until 1932, 33 for these small theaters that, that uh, couldn't afford to, to uh, transition. And it was a very, very interesting uh, time for a lot of people. And very hard, very, very hard, because the they had to completely change all the cameras. So the cameras had to be were much lo- larger, mm. louder, mm. but they couldn't be allowed to. Um, you couldn't hear the roar of the camera over when you were filming. So they had to work on that, and then they had to figure out this and that. And for a while, sound uh, technicians were ruling the roost. They were the ones who would come on to a set, uh, watch something, and if they didn't like the sound, 
they were the ones who would, uh, you know, stop stop filming, not the director. It was a real mess for a while until they finally worked it out. But I would say that that's the most important thing. But they kept working until they figured it out. And then uh, during the Depression, people had a place to go. They'd go to these, if you were in a big city, big movie houses, and you could see something for 25 cents, and it would just absolutely make your make your day. And people would go to the movies sometimes three times a week. Yeah, you know? I, I miss that. I think we could go back to that. I think people would be happy with something like that again. I, I just don't know. I just don't know. I think that we're going to have to have some sort of hybrid because yeah. I talk to people who are afraid to go to movie theaters and I, I, you know, they no longer are in the movie habit. That's what's scary to me, you know, because the studio, the theaters are closed and then you go the next week it's closed again. What are you supposed yeah. to do? Mm, just it's yeah. it, it used to be, this is where you would go. And people would just love to go to a nice movie theater and, you know, uh, see their friends and get dressed up. And, you know, it was yeah. really a social, it was a social thing. You, you did it because you were overjoyed to do it. But yeah. uh, I don't know what's going on. It's a on. challenge. It's a challenge. They got to. They got to make. You know, if, if you build it, they will come. I think is, is what I would say. But you got to make the. You got to make movies people want to see. You have it, to make. It, really there, there, there is a thing that I think that though that happened in the culture and and so we transitioned two or three times. Uh, particularly if you're talking about the 30s and 40s, probably on up into the 50s. Going to the mo movies was an event. People literally got dressed up, suits and ties. You've watched the old Lucy oh, yeah. shows. Going to the movies was as uh, important as going to the live theater so it was like this real event um um and then by the time you get get to say my childhood me and wade's childhood uh for one thing a lot of movies are being produced for this new thing called the teenager um uh, <laughs> a, a, a phrase that didn't exist until after world war ii um uh so you have all of these movies uh that are genre films and 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 movies become an activity of youth there were still adults who went to who went to the movies? Of course, there were grown-up movies being made, but but I but the movies became a thing, an activity of the youth, um, um, and and even as we grew up, this we took we the cinema that I went to as a teenager, a young twenties person, I, I was I was I was trying to engage in sophisticated cinema, foreign film, um, um, uh, 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 sophisticated dramas, you know, the sort of cinema of my youth drifted away. I'm not sure that, that any of that evolution has an opportunity to happen anymore. You know, your kids grow up, they're watching whatever. Wait, you have a daughter. You know this better than or anyone. Um, and I, I don't, sh I'm not sure that that moment is there anymore for kids to sort of, you know, go through their cinema existence as children, as teenagers, as young adults, as adults, uh, all spent time with the movies. Now I think they just live in that, in that spot on their phone. Well, I, th I think that you're right. It's interesting because when I was a little girl, uh, every Christmas, my parents and I would go to the movies and I wore my Christmas outfit and my brother wore his Christmas outfit to the movies. We were expected to be dressed up and we would go to the movie theater. It was just something holy and an usherette would take us to our, our assigned seats. I remember in the 60s when I was a teenager, I saw a movie called Thoroughly Modern Millie. 
Mm. And I went to Hollywood to see it. And I remember the girl I went with, we were in high school. We went and uh, got all dressed up. And my mother took us to the bus stop and everything. And having an usher take you to your seat. And everybody was so respectful and uh, nicely dressed. You didn't eat um, food in the movie in the middle of the theater. You just weren't allowed to do it then. The theaters were immaculate. The only thing you could get when I was a kid was maybe candy if you brought it in or you could buy candy and popcorn and that was it. Mm. <clears throat> so it was a special, it was a special treat. By the way, I remembered the actress I was talking about was Ann Miller. Ann Miller started, oh, yes. playing, uh, started playing adult roles when she was 13. I did not know that. Yeah, she was, if you go back, and no one believed her until they looked at her actual birth certificate. She, she said it was the depression. She'd come from Texas with her mother, and uh, these were the roles. The minute she hit puberty, you know, she had to play adult roles, and there wow. that was the reality of it. Well, so. my, my, my wife actually met Ann Miller uh, working on uh, Mulholland, Mulholland Drive. Yeah, she is a yeah, yeah, she's in David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, which my, my wife worked on. My wife was an executive on that and, uh, and said she was just a, the most lovely lady. And that may even be her last movie, so it, we kind of come full circle there. I think it, it was her last movie. She yeah. was kind of a... a she was from a different era because she said, I didn't want to do movies with sex. And then she ended up doing Mount Mulholland Drive. which was <laughs> <laughs> but, um, She was a gracious, I met her at the Director's Guild. She was a very gracious lady. And, but she was part of the old Hollywood and she was forever grateful because she knew how hard it was, how difficult it was for so many people. And so many people didn't make it. It was just a difficult time. I, I, she her first film uh, credited uncredited uncredited uh, uh, Anne of Green Gables, yeah, 1934. She was born in 23, so there yeah. she is, wow. all of 11 years old. Uh, she hit puberty, and then after that, she was playing adults. Yep. And she finally, yeah, in uh, a lot of movies, she was playing opposite adult men. So it was just, um, and she she persisted, and that's what it is. You find. It's persistent. And that's the way it was in that period. You persisted no matter what, you made it. I think that period in a movie history, the beginnings in the uh, 1900s, and then when people moved to Hollywood and would make movies, that's a fascinating period. But it was just it hard work, blood, sweat, and tears. People would injure themselves all the time because they didn't have doubles and it was just rough for everyone. But if you succeeded, think of the wonderful things that happened for you. Mm. Well, the novel is Mitzi of the Ritz. You can get it at amazon.com, Kindle, or just good old fashioned uh, non-electronic book. Uh, I recommend the book. I think the, the, uh, there's nothing like a physical book just sitting on the shelf. And when, when civilization ends, you won't need to worry about batteries. So the, the novel, again, is Mitzi of the Ritz by Lee Renee. Lee, thank you so much for, for talking with us, and uh, we wish you all the very, very best with the novel. Thank you so very much for having us. It's a beautiful novel, Lee, wonderfully written. Uh, the prose is just delectable. Good, good work. Thank you so very much.
Baby.